0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you boy, oh boy. Life is good, don't you think? I mean, no matter how stressed you are, it could be good. It can be very good. And today, no exception, by the way, happy no selfies day. This, uh, this is going to be the greatest day. For the Kardashians, it could prove fatal. Because can they make it through a day without totally, you know, taking 500 selfies?
2: Probably already taken 20.
1: No, just getting up in the morning. Just waking up. You got to wake up all, you know, you got to wake up and you got to get that early morning, I'm tired picture.
2: Well, you have to get that one that says, I just wake up like this after you do your makeup.
1: (laughs) After you get your your face on. Uh, No selfies day. It was established to help cast a light on just how much this has become a part of our culture. People are dying because of selfies.
2: Yes. Falling off cliffs, falling (laughs) off buildings.
1: Needs to stop. The average girl spends one hour and 24 minutes each week trying to capture that perfect selfie.
2: In fact, the Secret Service detail that it was uh, at the time protecting Donald Trump the Third, which is his oh, grandson.
1: Yeah, oh, oh, grandson, yeah. Yeah.
2: He was asleep in the back of this vehicle. Two Secret Service agents are taking him home. And while they were driving, they were taking pictures of them and him and... Oh, selfies! Really? yeah so now they're under investigation. Yeah, no, yeah. nothing, nothing insidious, nothing right. bad. They just took a picture. Well, yeah, you just
1: but he, a he's a sleeping child, but b he's the president's grandchild, and
2: he's not your kid. Yeah,
1: don't just, be taking just pictures.
2: Drive him home. So they're under investigation. So yeah, selfies. Jeff, what are you doing? I, Jeff keeps
1: taking pictures.
2: Well, selfies.
3: Well, this is the first time I'm wearing this shirt, so I want it. It's nice to be broadcast to the it's whole really world.
1: Really nice. Uh, I see you got a new selfie stick.
3: Yeah, and a broom. Yeah, this one... So you just taped your phone to the brim. Well, you know, most of these selfie sticks, you're not going to get more than two or three feet. So yeah. I needed more length. Yeah, you got like a 10-foot uh, selfie stick there.
1: Yep. And I guess you can clean up after. I'm taking pictures that nobody else can take. Oh, yeah. That's true. You You may be taking pictures nobody else would want to
3: take. Well, so- now I don't have to inconvenience you because yeah. I know you don't like taking pictures
1: of me. That was weird. You always would, you know, just can you just take one real fast? Yeah, glad, glad, glad you're moving along on that. Hey, today we're going to be talking about climate change, but maybe in a different way than we might normally uh, take it on. It seems like climate change creates conflict because you may not like solutions. Uh, you may not like the science that was done. It creates conflict. So is there a way to talk about climate change Without engaging all the conflict, hmm. And our uh, I mean, our guest says, "Yeah, there is."
2: There's a variety of topics you could use this sort of method, I guess, with too. I mean, because there's all sort of hot right. issues that you right. just don't bring up at family dinner, and-,
1: and and a lot of what I think we're going to learn from this uh, expert is, you if you keep focusing on the most divisive thing, you may not ever move on from the most divisive thing. So maybe. If we just if we if we can just not figure out how it happened or why it happened, we might be able to actually start figuring out how we could handle it. Right? It's not about blaming anyone, it's about figuring out how you handle it. When couples come in and talk to me, we could spend hours figuring out who was the idiot that caused the whole problem.
2: Isn't it pretty easy?
1: It's it's usually
2: both. Okay, great.
1: Right? And um but also i've never seen a relationship get better because we know that one person was an idiot at some point you've got to figure out, okay, what are we going to do to at least improve the condition mm-hmm. if this If our marriage has gone through this trouble, what can we do to right now start making it better and if we're if our earth is going through this issue, what can we do right now to make it different to make it better to make it healthier We'll get into that pretty interesting uh, little take today also of course. We'll be getting to the empty news, Matt Townsend news. I, I guess a lot of people think we're saying the word empty, like empty. Wow. No, no, no. It's M T news. Nobody thinks that. It's empty news, Matt Townsend news. It's good. It's good stuff. You don't have to take it personally. Well, I'm starting to get offended. Like they think it's <laughs> well, empty. I don't think
3: you've actually received any feedback. That... No, I have. Oh, you have. Yeah. My mom.
1: Man. She calls. Sounds like it's empty. She said, she said all of her friends
2: listen, and they think the show's empty. Hmm. I'm like, mm. it is empty.
1: I don't know. I don't know. What do you do?
2: Yeah. I, make, you, I mean, you've explained it multiple times.
1: And I can't make it clearer. M-T. Boom. <sighs> anyway, we'll get to all that. Maybe fine. it's
3: the way you're pronouncing it. You think? That's confusing. Yeah, maybe. It's your accent. Maybe I need to just slow down and say M-T
1: mm. News.
3: Well, we don't have time for that. No, yeah, there's a huge there. Just pause do it there. differently. But not that way.
1: Let's call it MTN. That's different. Okay. MTN? MT News, like CNN, MTN. Matt Townsend News.
2: Maybe maybe we need a sounder to announce the MTN News.
1: Yeah, let's start doing that. Except
2: that's redundant. It's just MTN.
1: Just do it right. Welcome to MTN. Anyway, we'll figure it out for you, folks. But uh, before we get to all that fun, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry,
2: what is going on around the rest of the country? President Trump's first budget is out this morning. $1.1 trillion in total titled America First, a budget blueprint to make America great again. Titles are... A strength with this administration. Uh, Proposed deep sweeping cuts. Federal government scientific and medical research would eliminate federal support for National Endowment for the Arts and the Humanities outright. While many expect cuts to the Environmental Protection Agency and the Energy Department, the breadth of the moves comes as a shock to some including the slashing of agencies that have long enjoyed bipartisan support. Among them, a proposed $6 billion cut to the National Institutes of Health, or one-fifth of its 2016 budget. The NIH sends about 80% of its budget to 300,000 outside researchers, meaning the dramatic cuts would send shockwaves across the scientific community. Wow! More broadly, other science programs will be terminated completely, including NASA's satellite program, the monitor solar storms and Earth's climate, the EPA's program to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, and the Accident Probing arm of the Chemical Safety Board. The Trump plan would also end federal involvement with the corporate for public broadcasting. So, Big Bird, but he went to HBO, so maybe they saw yeah. this coming. Who knows? With the EPA cuts alone, some 3,200 jobs would be eliminated. There's also a $4.1 billion ask or allot- allotment for the border wall. Hold it. 4.1 billion.
1: Hold it. Yeah. 4.1 billion. But I, the, I thought the Mexican government was going to pay for
2: that. Well, it's in the budget. though. It's a reimbursement program.
1: Well, but then why are they... Yeah, so why are they... We pay
2: for it and then we'll get it paid back. Oh. That's how it's going to work.
1: Aren't they building a
2: tunnel now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mexico. Yeah, I think all, they're going to build yeah, a tunnel they, they, under they the wall. The, the, great the border international tunnel. border tunnel. The
2: second great dig or big dig <laughs> or whatever. The U.S. District uh, Judge Derek K. Watson of Hawaii froze President Trump's new executive order on Wednesday, which sought to temporarily bar the issue, uh, issuance of new visas to citizens from six Muslim-majority countries and suspend the admission of new refugees. Watson was one of three judges to hear the arguments Wednesday about freezing the ban, including a federal judge in Maryland and the same federal ju- uh, the same federal judge in Washington who suspended Trump's first travel ban. It was set to hear arguments later in the day. Lawyers in Hawaii argue that the revised ban violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment because they deem it to be essentially a Muslim ban, hurts the ability of business and universities to recruit talent, and damages the Hawaii tourism industry. Here's President Trump at a rally last night in Nashville. This ruling makes us look weak. Which, by the way, we no longer are,
4: believe me. Just look at our borders. We're
0: going to fight this terrible ruling. We're going to take our case as far as it needs to
4: go, including all the way up to the Supreme Court. We're going to win. We're going to keep our citizens safe.
2: Ready to okay. go. Okay, yeah. The rally also featured a uh, rousing lock her up <laughs> chant from the audience still. So that's still going on. He's still yeah. running for office. Okay. Um, a second federal judge. Her. That, her. Who, her. Her. Hillary. I think there's yeah, going Hil- right? yeah, 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 yeah. to yeah.
3: be a day when people don't even know who they're referring to when they say lock her up. And they're like,
2: no. yeah, my wife, lock her up. <laughs> she drives me crazy. A second federal judge this morning in Maryland has blocked a portion of the Trump's travel ban. Uh, the restraining order is narrow. It was handed down. Uh, than, what was handed down in Hawaii? It targets a portion of Trump's order that prevents citizens of the six majority Muslim countries from being able to issue being issued a visa. So Maryland and Hawaii both have. Stays on, or was, it was supposed to go into effect today, I believe. Boy. So the travel ban. Popular. Okay. Okay. Um, also, a London-based tour operator, maybe a vacation option for you, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. London-based tour operator will soon offer people the chance to dive down to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean to see the Titanic. Oh, wow. That'd be cool. So starting May 2018, the company Blue Marble Private will begin taking groups of nine people on eight-day journeys that end in the first-hand look at the ship that sunk in 1912. The trip will begin in Newfoundland, Canada, where the group will take a helicopter to an expedition support yacht. Okay. Set up near the wreckage. Ex- the, the uh, old expedition support yacht. Yeah. After days of adjusting to the environment and learning about the logistics of the dive business, Insider reports a specialty designed titanium and carbon fiber submersible will lower divers, accompanied by a crew of experts, sure. into water as deep as 13,000 feet. But the chance to swim over to the shipwreck won't come cheap. The trip is estimated to cost how much? Ten thousand dollars. One hundred five thousand dollars per person. Wow!
3: Why can't we just go watch that uh, documentary that James Cameron made? Because he did Titanic. No, he did Titanic, and then he did
1: another one. It was like Ghosts of the Abyss or something like that. Why would you want to? Why wouldn't you just rather just watch the Titanic? Because then you could see it. That was a highly
3: fictionalized movie. No. I mean, there was a ship that sunk called the Titanic, yeah. but everything else in that movie—I guess the names were the same. Well, and the lady with the diamond thing. Well, oh, that really happened. Yeah. Okay.
2: Man, there was truth muddled with fiction. Um, what's interesting—the one hundred five thousand dollars fee per person, uh-huh. equivalent to what first-class passengers would have had to pay to actually ride on the Titanic.
1: Whoa! Seriously.
2: Adjusting for inflation and all that good stuff.
1: Well, now, um, I, I assume this uh, yacht – what was it called again? The submersible. The, well, uh,
2: there's the expedition support yacht.
1: The expedition support yacht. I'm assuming it would be watching out for icebergs because wouldn't that be crazy? Right. If
2: – History repeated itself. Yeah.
1: Iceberg. You know what they ought to do? They
3: ought to charge different prices for these tickets based on class. And the people that pay less – can be more toward the bowel of this submersible Ooh. so they're in more danger, but they don't have to pay as much. Huh. That's a great
2: trade your safety for
1: yeah. cheaper prices. You want a discount? We put you in the we put you in the bottom, in the bowels. And
2: if you want to pay like ten bucks, it'll just strap yeah. you right to the side of the boat.
1: Not a bad idea. You'll be the bumper. You know what else you could do is take off, if you really want to fit more people in, take off all the lifeboats. Mm. And just make the places they would put lifeboats just have little, like, bunk rooms where they could just stuff more people in. Or let them go for free, but they can't be in the
3: submersible and just see how long they can last with the extreme pressure down there.
1: Okay. See, do we have to think of everything? These are
2: great ideas. Safety is expensive. You start peeling away those those layers yeah. of safety; it's going to be a cheap, cheap, cheap trip for it you. It seems like
1: there's more and more fun activities for incredibly wealthy people.
2: It seems like it. If you have money, it could be fun.
1: When are they going to, you know, find an activity just for the average person? Hmm. You know, it used to be you could go to a basketball game, a pro basketball game, or pro football game. Now that's just for the wealthy.
2: It is. The yeah. prices are crazy. Yeah. I, I got a, uh, a Groupon for a pro basketball game recently, and I still was like, it costs this much with a Groupon?
1: Yeah. Um, that's a funny word.
2: Groupon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I thought Groupon had actually gone out of business, but I was yeah. I was surprised. My wife's like, hey, there's a Groupon. I go, what? Did What? You
1: need, On what?
2: Do you need a doctor to look at that? What, <laughs> what are you talking
1: about? <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> not good. So um, Donald Trump is apparently making a lot of cuts.
2: Well, which he it, said he would do. The budget is a wish list. Yeah. It's not like this is going to happen in, in its entirety. It's so a wish
1: list for, for – yeah. He,
2: he made a lot of promises running. He put all those promises in a budget. He sends that to Congress. They figure out which ones they want and which ones won't work.
1: Is it true that I saw in the news something as, as simple as um, meals on wills could go away? Yes. Well, but how would those people eat?
2: Well, we're, we're a bootstrap nation, Matt. We we like to do things on our own. We don't want handouts and welfare is evil.
3: Well, the, you just take away the wheels. We've got the budget for the meals, just yeah. not the wheels. So do you
1: want wheels or meals? you got to choose. Because a lot of that was done by volunteers anyway, wasn't it? I thought that a lot of volunteers were involved. I don't know.
3: Oh, no. There was a lot of
1: racketeering going on there. Really? Yeah. just Not just volunteering. Racketeering. It seems like... Um, So the Congress is going to then look at all this and say, yeah, we're going to keep mills on wills.
2: There's already Republicans kind of pushing back on many aspects of this. So it's not just going to be a rubber stamp from the ruling party, if you
1: will. I mean, it just seemed like it's a great idea. Let's save money. But
2: every president has their list. They have their wish list and it gets pared down to something more manageable. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And he's also, as part of the budget, increasing spending um, for defense. Oh, Yeah. $54
2: $54 billion. He's going to spend
1: $54 billion on
3: defense? More. Defense is going to cost a lot more than that.
1: We're not talking about the border fence. Oh, I see. I thought you were just all of a sudden talking funny. That's
2: only going to cost $4 billion.
1: Yeah. But of course, we're not paying for it except it's in the budget.
2: Well, it's a rebate system. Oh, so... So you pay for it. Then yeah. you fill out the little form. And oh, and then... Clip your little UPC symbol, staple it to it, and send it off to the, the company. And oh. then, you know, in six to eight oh. months, they send you the check. They'll
1: send you the check. Yeah. Oh, so we'll just invoice. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> makes, a, makes a lot of sense. Apparently, too, Coast Guard budget oh, yeah. is going to be cut as
2: well. Almost wiped out, yeah. But
1: I thought the Coast Guard was part of the defense. It's,
2: the, it's, the, it's a border that we have an Ocean, so we're fine. We need to worry about that.
1: Yeah, but we would need it seems like we need to guard the coast. It's
2: the walking part of the border they're concerned about, not the part where you can take a boat and just, you know, there's Russian okay. ships
1: out there. So, I mean, okay. So, uh we have fences uh-huh. for I guess the land part right. of the country, but the water part we don't have fences, we have coast guard.
2: Well, that's the idea. And
1: yeah. then but if the then the coast guard could be cut, yeah. so then I guess we just build like a wall in the water? Could we make them
3: invisible fences? Then we could call them hidden fences. Great movie,
1: by the way. Hidden figures, that is. No such movie as hidden fences. We will take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking climate change. Is there a way to actually have a conversation about the divisive climate change topic without it turning so divisive? Stick with us. Helping you walk through the hard talk. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for all of the hot air expended on the topic of uh, climate change, we don't know how to talk about it very well, do we? Here with us today to discuss talking about climate change and doing it across the aisle is Thomas Bateman. Thomas is a professor of management at the University of Virginia. Professor Bateman specializes in organizational behavior, and he conducts research on leadership, problem-solving, motivation, decision-making, personality, stress, and on and on the list goes. Uh, Thomas Bateman, thank you so much for being with us today.
5: Oh, good morning, Matt. Thank you. Glad to be with you.
1: Now, how does a business professor even a want to dive into the climate uh, change issue, because it's so contentious? And and what drove you there? What made you so interested in, in wanting to get involved in this discussion?
5: Well, nice opening question. I won't give you a long history, but I was in high school during the first Earth Day, and I, so that would have been 1970, and that left a lasting image, but but it was not part of my work for, for decades thereafter. Uh, I am kind of theoretically and practically interested in human behavior generally, especially in the workplace, and a particular type of human behavior called proactive behavior, which Mm. is behavior that is forward-looking, problem-oriented, action-oriented, trying to create a better future than the path we are currently on. That's great. And just recent years, climate change has become a fascination.
1: Well, and it's, I think it's, you know, needed. Um, As we've all seen, the debate rages on. It seems like you're kind of, uh, some will just disregard some of the data, some um, don't flat out trust the data. Some are inventing data, many would argue. It, but it, no matter what it is, it seems like something that's impacting all of us, and yet we're so divided on it, we can't even talk about it. How, how do you propose, you know, what are some of the principles we would use to start even having a conversation that would go anywhere?
5: Uh, Well, first, let me say I appreciate what you just said and that attitude, and I actually think a lot of people agree with you, but not everybody is willing to to say that
6: because
5: conversations so often go in the wrong direction, and to to, to take just a little step back – it was a decade ago. Republicans and Democrats alike were in agreement about the, about what's happening and about the importance of taking action. And famously, I will bet you'll remember Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich did a television commercial together.
6: Yep, right. Where they're
5: sitting on a park bench and saying how they never agree, except now they agree about climate change and the need to do something. Well, it was at the, about that time, though, that the economy crashed. And uh, people only have a kind of a finite pool of of worry that they can they can allocate. The economy became front and center, and climate change went to the back burner. And then politics became nastier, and people started stereotyping each other much more quickly and nastily. And uh, and now climate change, as complicated as it is, as it is it's usually discussed in very. Um, gross simple terms and we quickly stereotype someone who disagrees with us, us and then the the conversation goes nowhere.
1: Right. And yet it is still a global issue. And um and the other thing I guess too, and you use a metaphor in your article, that you know the train the train has left the station. The train is on the move. The global I mean, it is what it is. It's the train is on the move. And we've got to at some point, it seems like, come together on um, solutions. But one of the problems, I guess, is that we end up fighting so much about causes and um, the data that we don't actually start moving toward any, you know, you know, fixes. How, how, how is, is that? Is that a pretty typical conflict, you know, approach? Uh, What you just said is right on the money,
5: and, of course, that brings us right to the article that caught your attention uh, with my colleague, Kieran O'Connor. We thought it was time to try to change the conversation. When people have argued, it has often been about the science, although scientists don't argue among themselves, That's clear as you know. Uh, and it has also been about whether it 's man made or not uh, that is human caused or not, uh, and there are two scientists don 't argue with one another, but a lot of people deny that uh, we wanted to, those are classic arguments like you said we wanted to change the focus to solutions, and we did a study trying to figure out what solutions people disagree on the most uh, or, or, or might agree on a little bit more and uh, we wanted i 'm calling it a, a strategic Solutions, the kind of the psychology underlying uh, strategies for dealing with climate change. Uh, and that's what we're interested in. And, and, and I, I think you want to know more about what we did and what we found. Yeah. Br- briefly, there there are two broad strategic solutions. One is mitigation, and a second is adaptation. Uh, a third that we didn't study, it's very new, and we will study it soon, I hope, is geoengineering, which, as you know, is now talked about. Uh, but it's more of a futuristic thing. Uh, uh, mitigation and adaptation have been the main, uh, main, main strategic solution. So mitigation is to cut back on carbon and other uh emissions that affect global warming uh to cut cut down at the source uh, not release as much into the air and then adaptation is to make changes in the way we live so that we can cope with the changes being brought about, hmm. and we and we did in fact find interesting
1: differences between those two strategies. So one's kind of a one is the traditional let's 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 mitigate this let's decrease emissions. Another is uh, we're going to have to start adapting. It's it's a it's an adapting strategy of. You know, how do we adapt to warmer temperatures, uh, rising sea levels? Um, and, And then it's a really interesting thing I can see you're doing here, Thomas, that maybe might be lost on a few people because they might just immediately jump into, well, we can't just adapt. I mean we gotta stop it. And then there's the others that, that have got to you know that that don't want to work on cutting back emissions. But what you're doing and, and there's a whole form of this in therapy as well called solution-based therapy mm. when people come in and sit down and we could spend forever talking about why they're anxious and You know, was it their parents? Was it their genes? Was it what's going on? And and we could talk about that or we could start to identify what would it look like if we were no longer influenced by this? How would we act different? How would we be different? And by getting into solutions, you tend to create some movement and some activity that eventually would allow you to come back with less reactivity using your word to uh, or proactivity to, to deal with the other issues that need to be solved
5: really nice comment and a good analogy right there. So just as you said about solution-based therapy, uh, uh, the stuff we're talking about is, is, as you said, solutions. It is not so much focused in the past and who caused it and and what do the data show or not show, although the data are clear again, uh, nor is it rooted in the present and what what we're thinking about right at this moment. It is forward-looking. And so back to our results, which I know you're interested in, uh first i think very importantly people were uh did distinguish sort of psychologically between the two strategies mitigation versus adaptation the the basic difference is clear uh, and that's useful. That's a useful starting point. Yeah, yeah. There's not – yep. And, uh, and as you might guess, uh, we, we measured conservatism and liberalism, self-reports, and conservatives were less likely to embrace either of those, and liberals hmm. were more likely to embrace both of those. However, they also di- – the two strategies were, were seen differently, and the m- most interesting finding – is that whereas liberals and conservatives disagreed in every way, there was less disagreement around around uh, adaptation. Uh, so strong disagreement on mitigation, mm. as might be guessed. Yeah, adaptation generated less disagreement, and it might be an acknowledgement that conservatives do know we have to do something. Yeah, absolutely. Republicans on the Hill know we have to do something. Mm-hmm. But the political climate isn't such to to take much action.
1: Well, and it seems like um, when we talk about adaptation, uh, when you start getting into discussions about how to, you know, raise up your your roads so that they're they don't they're not deteriorating from ocean and oceans and waves, and when you have to start ad- adapting to the future of um, global warming, it, it would seem that as people have to start spending money creating solutions, exercising energy, they would also maybe alter some of their views on why this is happening. The uh, minute you have great. to throw down a dollar to fix something, you also don't want to make – you You don't want to have to keep doing that if people are going to keep creating the problem.
5: Uh, right. I agree with that completely, and uh, others would too. But actually, you're, you're getting at what is a, not only a very interesting question theoretically, but also – hugely important practically. Uh, Some people think that as we start, as we adapt, and of course some communities and some countries are doing more than others, but adaptation is expensive. And as people see those costs in the short term, maybe they'll come to realize we need to adapt Mitigate also, Mm -hmm. and the net will be less expensive and more impactful in a positive way. But there's a very definite other alternative, and we just don't know what's going to happen when people do start adapting. It will be easy to say, "Well, we're doing stuff, and therefore we're doing our part." That's true. Uh, And then there's a lot of there's kind of what's called psychological license to drop the ball in other ways. So to keep. Multiple solutions going at once will be a big, big human challenge.
1: That is – that's true. I mean we're doing something. I've had – we had a a friend on the show who is the CEO of an energy company in the West and they own a lot of coal mines and they own a lot of uh, – they own trains that bring the coal in. They, I mean they've invested heavily in coal and yet – These people that are all scientists, too, um, and own coal plants are also in the adaptive phase. While they they push back on some of the mitigation, they are adapting and finding other ways that they could invest and retool and regenerate uh, and, and still be an energy leader through adapting and so it it was it's funny to me because i've i've heard of the battle and all the issues with global warming i hear it and i hear it and then i have an executive of a coal plant basically come in and he's like oh yeah no no we're trying we're 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 going cleaner in in non-coal related energies as well and i'm thinking what how come nobody hears about this so I guess this is this is why you as a kind of a a business expert and and an organizational behavior expert is studying this because this is human behavior. This is organizational behavior.
5: Uh, yes. Once again, I love your comment, love your example. The, the private sector has long been – I mean, people think of the extractive industries being antagonists. And some, some companies, of course, are antagonism, antagonistic toward progressive action on climate change. Uh, but you're quite right. Generally, the private sector is far more – knows the importance of the economy, knows the importance both long-term and short-term to their firms – uh, a lot of people st- well, stereotype climate action as an environmentalist cause, mm. and that 's all well and good for environmentalists and people who uh, who who embrace that cause and others who are sympathetic to that cause. but the fact of the matter is climate action name an issue and climate Change will affect it in a negative way right from from economics uh, to um, uh, migration of human populations uh, to uh, humanitarian aid to war to food and water if, if you 're not extremely extremely antagonistic to climate change, if you can give yourself a one percent chance that maybe climate change is important. And 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 the things you read and hear start to start, start to be considered a little bit more. People c- can come to realize: just pick a problem, any problem, and climate change is a root cause in
1: some fashion. Oh yeah. So
5: and industry, most of industry sees that.
1: Powerful. Well, and it really, I mean, it, and and let's let's actually let's take a break because I want to get into. when we come back, we just tend to, it seems like, be more reactive animals than the proactive you're talking about. And um, so we react to, you know, the big global environmental concern and all the hooey that's being spewed out there. But there's certain basic beliefs we all have that still jive with taking care of the environment, even if you don't like environmentalists. Right. Um, So we'll get into that. Um, Proactive versus reactive. How do we talk about global warming without becoming reactive? Stick with us. More with Thomas Bateman when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you learn to talk through the difficult stuff. (music) Welcome back, friends. We're talking... About climate change and even maybe more importantly, we're talking about how we talk about difficult issues like climate change. Uh, on the phone with us is Thomas Bateman. He's a professor that specializes in organizational behavior uh, and is a professor of management at the University of Virginia and conducts research on leadership, problem solving, motivation, decision making issues. Today, he's talking to us about um, some work he's been doing on how we could talk maybe more effectively about, um, about climate change. Thomas Bateman, thank you again for being with us pleasure thank you matt so one of the things that you brought up is your specialty is in um this uh the research on proactivity as as kind of being an active solution-oriented problem solver of issues um but when it comes to climate change how do you not how does the issue because if everybody has polarized it and they all have kind of their interpretation their view of what it is how do aren't, aren't isn't everybody acting proactively on their beliefs? And if their beliefs are wrong or incomplete—not wrong, but incomplete—not whole, then our proactivity only makes this more complicated, doesn't it? Well, I'd say that if
5: people are acting based on their beliefs, so they're acting consistent with their beliefs. Uh, but I would I see proactivity as. Taking a step, taking an action that that constitutes a change, mm. a change in direction, a change in in the status quo, uh, and that would and when people have conversations, far more often than not, they they talk with the, their friends, they talk with the usual people, they talk with people they in the case of climate change, uh, who have the same attitudes that they do. So it's, it's business as usual whatever side of the debate a person is in, most people are routinely going about their conversations in the same kinds of ways with the same people. Mm. So an act of proactivity, and by the way, I think climate action is the ultimate in proactivity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, good. Uh, uh, But also little things like changing the conversation is is a proactive action to pick somebody different to talk with who might think differently to approach the conversation in a different way from what you normally do to go in not expecting a fight but maybe go in wanting to learn mm. a different perspective that's all proactive in the sense of trying to change the way you yourself operate including in conversation with other people
1: and that's I mean, one of the i mean that's part of that i guess is if i go in willing to learn then another proactive change is to you know, think win-win. How can we both win this? Um, and and I, I worked a lot with Stephen Covey, and I know um, proactivity, be proactive is the number one principle in his seven habits of highly effective um, people. Does talk about, um, talk about how you actually then implement it. How, how would one go in, Thomas, and start to be proactive and make a change uh, real time with a person on this discussion?
5: Uh, well, you meant, so just to say, just to just to summarize quickly the results of our study again, which again is what caught your interest, uh, choosing the subject of solutions, where do we go from here, is by and large a very different topic from the topics people usually use to study, right. uh, to talk for conversation. Uh, and likewise, to choose somebody different. Uh, is a proactive step. Uh, you mentioned Stephen Covey, of course. Uh, one of his other habits, great habits, is, how does he put it, Do Seek first to understand,
1: understand then, to be understood. And then to
5: be understood, right? So uh, listening as opposed to telling, uh, asking questions as opposed to telling, that can be a two-way street. That's the, the starting point for a good conversation. And substantively, aside from solutions, you can learn. You can learn why people think the way they do. There are reasons to not act on climate change. It's not easy. It does cost money. By the, there are things like mm, faith-based reasons to not act on climate change. That is to say, who are we to to uh, manipulate? the you know god 's creation uh, there there are other faith based reasons to mm-hmm. act on on climate change so if people have a commonality with regard to faith, they can explore the different perspectives and who knows what they what they can come to talk to uh, they come come to some agreement on um, by the way too Another reason that uh, makes people either not want to have the conversation or not get, get very far in the conversation is a belief that it's impossible. What can I do? Just one little person oh, in sure. the face of this wicked problem.
1: Yeah, it's just too big uh, to handle.
5: And Yes, yes right. But uh, we can accomplish more in combination with other people as opposed to all by ourselves. And conversation is the, is the building block of change yeah we also, by talking to other people, can come to realize what actions are available to us, and even little things I mean people think of recycling but just voting, just putting pressure on a elected official uh just uh, there's an organization I know called the Association of Climate Change Officers, based in Washington, D.C. So, any any listeners who are who work in the domain of of sustainability or environmental issues or climate change per se, there is now a formal association in D.C. Uh, uh, that, to which to which anybody uh, can join. Um, so, so little things can snowball into more collective uh, uh, action. And part of it is
1: it's fun to – it's a fascinating topic and fun to explore possibilities in conversation with others. Oh, it's so – and really, that is community, right? That's how we create a closeness to people. It seems like one of the the number one things we could communicate about is – and you almost have to defer to the other first. And you have to do this with some sense of humility um, and a real desire to learn is – Help me understand how how you see it. I, I think so many of us don't know why we think the way we think necessarily. Um, and it would be almost uncovering the hidden bias or the hidden issues or even uncover my incongruencies because I, I may I may hate to be told what to do, but I also believe God gave me an earth and I should be a good steward of it. And I believe some of that stewardship is to get benefit out of it. But I also believe I need to take care of it. And yet I don't bring up any of the God belief stuff. Um, I just fight that, you know, don't tell me what to do. The science is bad. It, it, It seems like we've got to be willing to open up the more basic bias that we have or the incongruencies in our thinking.
5: You said a lot of good things there, and I'll I'll start by cycling back to your opening uh, 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 phrase, which had to do with community. Community is dysfunctional right now in the sense that activists talk to each other, environmental activists, climate activists talk to each other uh, and demonize the other side at the same time resisters, deniers. I mean, people do label and stereotype and use name-calling, etc. And so people reaffirm with their like-minded friends and are quick to demonize the Mm. other side. And that is a two-way street. Uh, So I don't know if this sounds like cliché. There's a huge difference between a debate uh, and, and enjoying arguing with people versus genuine dialogue. Absolutely. And anybody who cares to can easily Google the word dialogue, or go to Amazon and, and enter the word dialogue and find very useful articles and books
1: about how to engage. Because one key to dialogue is suspending your certainty, and um, and another key is you you almost have to remain um, what's like the word like actively curious and and oh, yeah. right and just actively trying to understand the other's view because. If I could understand your view more, suspending mine, it doesn't mean I give mine up. Then if you could suspend your view and actively understand my view, in between those is where the new answers lie. Uh, right on. It's a, lot, it's a lot more fun as well. Yeah. Uh, not to mention productive. I love this. I mean, uh, so when you think about it, what's your goal now, Thomas? What's your next step with the research and how do you want to start moving you're learning forward? Uh, well, thanks for that question. Uh, I do want people to.
5: I, I do, if I may say, have an, uh, another recent article in, the, in a journal called Nature Climate Change, and it's about the need for more leaders, mm. which is to say, not just scientists as leaders or public officials as leaders, but the average citizen to just take a little proactive initiative to start conversations and find niches to become active, find reasons to care, uh, particular action strategies that have personal appeal, and start talking and start growing the group of people who, who uh, want to pursue the same, the same kinds of things. So I'm calling for more climate leaders, period, more numbers of yeah. average people. Well, yeah, the uh, average people. That would probably be very helpful. Uh, yes. Uh, and that includes by the way press, pressure on congress people yeah
6: right to
5: take care about this uh, in in cycling back to some earlier things uh, I, research wise I do think it 's huge. we have to maintain uh, an interest and a focus on multiple solutions. And of course, engineers and scientists are doing that. And there are lots of there are lots of solutions that we that we know of. Um, But it's a psychological and leadership thing to, you know, make them happen and to make them happen in the appropriate mix of mitigation and adaptation. Yeah. And as far as my research with Kieran O'Connor, uh, we would love to do studies soon, not only about adding engine, geoengineering, which is a, another fascinating topic with great risks, as you know, but, but some potential, and it's in the air now for discussion. I wanna find out if, if, as people start taking action, does that mean they'll drop balls in other ways? Hmm. We need to keep multiple solutions moving
1: forward. No, I love it. Good stuff, Thomas. Great to talk to you, and I appreciate the work you are doing. Um, we'll have you back on to to continue this discussion and figure out more ways to lead on the climate issue. Um, and again, it doesn't mean you have to be extreme in any way, shape, or form. You could just accept what's happening, and let's start to be the solutions. Let's start to let's start to create the conversations, the community, instead of just. You know, throwing out your view and running. Let's talk. Figure stuff out. This is the Matt Townsend Show, folks, helping you be the change in the world. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. So we sit here, we talk about. Talking And it's so enlightening to think if I could put the some of the top leaders on both sides of the argument without the idea of arguing, but let's seriously figure out what we have in common, it might create some different ideas. Um, where this is getting a lot of attention is uh, apparently with the big snowstorm that was supposed to destroy the, the northeast.
2: There were certain parts that got almost two feet of snow, yeah. but bigger cities were missed, yeah
1: thousands like 8000 flights were canceled so a lot of um congressmen had to get to DC without flights so many drove and there's a lot of talk about some of the funny relationships like you know in some states you don't share the same you know i party identity with everyone in your state so two congressmen uh representative will hurd um and two Texas lawmakers, basically, Mm. Will Hurd and Representative Beto O'Rourke, a Democrat and a Republican, were in a car for a 1,600-mile journey. Boy. And for 1,600 miles, they had nothing but time to talk. And they had different personalities. One of them liked stopping everywhere and meeting everyone. The other one just kind of wanted to get there. (laughs) We just get there. And they all had to get back because there was a big vote that they had to vote on. And anyway, they, they talk about the fact that so many things were discussed that they actually were able to find some togetherness. Hmm. Like in this budget, we've got to get employees working again. You remember how President Trump put a stay on the On the hiring at Mm -hmm. in the government, well, the Republican totally agreed with that. That's totally true. Except the Democrat pointed out that the VA can't hire people, they can't move people, they can't get doctors working because there's a freeze. It's really hurt them, yeah. And now that has influenced the Republican to say we've got to get we've got to get the VA working. We got to we've got to open up some some channels for hiring in the government.
2: So what you you have a discussion with somebody else and you might. Find out something new. Not weird.
1: So I think what we have to do, it's a very simple solution. We mandate that uh, a, a a Republican and a Democrat have to drive at least 1,600 miles with each other every year.
2: Create the odd couple. Create the odd couple. Nice.
1: Just a simple solution, folks. I don't know why no one else has thought about it. We can't do everything. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. Helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side. Happy days. Hope you're having a great uh, day so far. Remember, it's... Uh, it's your life, and you only get one of them to live. So let us help give you some ideas. Some of them will even be important. Other than that, just make it the best you can. For some reason, you just made me think of two different songs, and
3: I want to know which one you think is better. It's uh, My Life by but, Billy Joel, John, or, or It's My Life by Bon Jovi. Uh,
1: I, I Right then, I went with the John Bon Jovi. Really? Over yeah. Billy Joel? Yeah. And normally I would choose Billy Joel, but I think I'm also a Bon Jovi fan. But you're not a
3: 50 year old woman.
1: Right. Boy, good, good point. That's a great good point. point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's an amazingly good point. Uh, I'm not a 50 year old woman. I'm a 50 year old, 47 year old.
2: They prefer to man. be referred to as a woman of a certain age. Yeah. It's nicer,
1: nobody really wants to be identified by their age, no, not really. except by the way, you know, anyone under 10.
2: Yeah,
1: that's a big deal.
3: So, you don't see age then, no, alone. which is why you felt it was okay to ridicule me as a baby.
1: Hmm. Yesterday kind of backed you, you still haven't gotten over that, nope. Wow, and I just proved
2: you wrong. Wow, how does that feel, Matt?
1: Well, you proved me wrong. Twenty-four hours later, not quite the impact. In a completely different discussion. Yeah. hmm. Huh. Um, Small victories. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's a. uh, Here's here's an interesting thing. I I relate now better with President Trump than ever. And are you you
2: getting a wig stapled to your head? Or
1: no, we'll get into this because
2: that's the silliest thing I've ever heard.
1: I didn't know healthcare was as complicated as it is.
2: Neither did he, apparently. I know. Or anyone else.
1: And well, I don't want to we don't have time right now, but I I'm 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 a mayor of a city of now about 45,000 people. Oh wow, it grew. I know it's growing like crazy. Wow. And so Do we'll talk tax about it. You
2: incentives to get people to come to your city or
1: No, no, no. I just create this incredible city that everyone wants to be in, oh, but okay. we weren't providing healthcare. <clears throat> and are you we, now? Well, now I have to because
2: – So you're a socialist is what you're saying. As
1: our city has grown, we've got to have hospitals. And anyway, I would had like 98 percent – Happiness levels, and you're we start communal
2: it. farms next. Is that you to do? Well,
1: I don't want to, but okay. it seems like this is what the people want. But it's it's running me out. It's expensive, and I can't
3: I can't afford it. So I know we need to get to the news here in a second. But when we, I, I do want to come back to this topic, yeah, because uh, you're you're making it sound like everybody in
1: you call it. There are two names. You call it Townton Abbey and yeah. Towntown. Town. No, it's now Townton Abbey. And oh, towntown is like the downtown part of Taunton Abbey. Ooh, the Ta-
2: historic part of Taunton da- Abbey, yeah.
1: There are some people that in
3: in your town it's forever ingrained in their minds that it's towntown and yeah. yeah.
1: There I've I've gotten word that not everybody is happy. Change is hard. Change oh, is difficult. so you've been talking to my people on SimCity. Yes. And can you name <laughs> one name that you talk to?
3: I will not reveal my sources. Wow!
2: But Beatrice Merriweather.
3: <laughs> after the news, yeah, you can hear from this citizen who is not happy Holy at all. Holy cow! An interview from one
1: of my not um, an interview. Oh,
3: she's going to speak to us through song.
2: An expose. Oh, great! Oh, I know music. who it is.
1: I know who it is. Yeah, <clears throat> she's still around. Wow. We'll get there. So we'll get to that. I can hardly wait. Uh, also, the stress-proof brain. Is there, is, it, is there a way to stress-proof your brain? You know, like you waterproof something? Right. What if we could stress-proof it? Hmm. So, you, you you know, you're impervious to stress. It doesn't increase your, your yeah. chemical levels. It doesn't make you turn into a crazy, crazy person.
2: What if you choose just not to care about anything?
1: Well, you say that, but your body... Itself will still respond to stress. If I put you under stress, you can no, say no, I'm no. not going to respond to I, it. Your I would body. feel
2: it coming and I would leave.
1: Yeah. But that, so, see, that's that's not an actual fix. That's just an avoidance.
3: So don't care about anything. Always be on time. Uh, let's see. What else? Don't lie. That's Those are do. three things right there that would, can de-stress yeah. your brain. But
1: like, what about just, You know, the fact that you lost a job.
3: Don't accept a job. Or don't accept the fact that you (laughs) lost the job. Yeah, just
1: that.
3: So your boss says you're fired and you say, no, I'm not. Just walk out of the room.
1: Well, okay. And then just come back the very next day. Well, then what do you do when security's there? And they're like, oh, no, you can't go in.
3: I don't recognize your right to grab me and throw me out of the building. And then when they tase you,
1: what do you do other than gyrate on the floor? That's not a taser. (laughs) Just deny it. That's not a tape.
2: Okay. No, there's limits to this See, because
1: eventually you can deny it all you want, but eventually the stress is going to get you. So Mm. we'll be talking about how to stress-proof your brain. Also, we'll be talking later about how to declutter your digital life. A lot of people very cluttered in the phone area in life. They keep everything. How to declutter with Caitlin Thomas. I know. Yeah. Get a landline. (laughs)
3: <laughs> you know i mean these cable yeah. companies are still forcing jamming it down our throats anyway right with the triple play yeah they're hanging on for dear life now what's gonna happen they though? know that the cell phone is a thing now wait till they start telemarketing
1: your cell phone already happening not good. We'll get to all that fun. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country?
2: President Trump sent his first budget proposal to Congress this morning. Trump seeks to raise the budget for the Defense Department by $54 billion and give more modest boosts to the Department of Veterans Affairs and Homeland Security, mostly for building Trump's Mexico border wall and hiring more border agents. The cut. And he'll basically, as it says here, cut everything else. 19 agencies. will see uh, reductions in budgets. The State Department and Environmental Protection Agency will see the steepest cuts, 29% and 31% respectively. The budget would eliminate all funding for 19 agencies including the National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, Corporate for Public Broadcasting, PBS and NPR, the Legal Services Corporation, the Chemical Safety Board, and the Appalachian Regional Commission. Not sure what that is, but they're going to cut money there too. The presidential budget is a wish list of what the White House would like to see happen. Congress decides how the final budget will be crafted. So we'll see how that uh, negotiation goes forward. During a speech in Nashville Wednesday night, President Trump blasted a Hawaii judge. Uh, decision to put a freeze on his revised executive order which sought to temporarily bar the issuance of new visas to citizens from six muslim majority countries and suspend the admission of new refugees the order he blocked was a watered down version of the first one trump said (laughs) this is in the opinion of many an unprecedented unprecedented judicial overreach here's more from president trump
4: this new order was tailored
0: to the dictates of the ninth circuits in my opinion flawed ruling this is in the opinion of many an unprecedented judicial overreach
2: there you go so uh this morning president obama's former ethics lawyer who worked in the white house said that calling it a watered down version of the first one that was blocked would probably cause some legal issues in court when people bring that up again, well, you just said this is just the same version, just watered down a little bit. So it's still interesting. Good. see what happens mm. when this goes to court, see some uh, sees more court time. The second federal judge this morning in Maryland has also blocked a portion of the travel ban. Ah. According to a report in the Washington Post, House Speaker Paul Ryan said on Wednesday that his health care proposal has, no, it has to change if it's going to pass the House. He has previously said that the legislation would fail if it was changed. The shift in Ryan's opinion came after a private meeting with the House Republicans on Wednesday. Now we have our score. We can make some necessary improvements and refinements to the bill, he said, referring to the uh, CBO's estimate, the impact on the number of those covered by the health insurance. Ryan did not say specifically what he would change. And finally, have you ever actually read the terms of services agreement that you have, say, with Apple or Google or Amazon or any of these companies? Is that the EULA? Yeah. No. The thing everyone goes yes and just clicks uh-huh. on through without even looking at
1: it. No, you could ask for my first, third, and fifth born, and I've
2: already agreed. So, yes, no, I don't. There's all kind. Of, a lot of what uh, one of the things people point out is a lot of these companies. If you want to sue them, if you say yes on the terms of agreement, you've agreed to mediation instead. Yes, which really helps the company out because then they don't have to go to court.
1: It saves you lots really, of money.
2: It doesn't help you out because you get a lower settlement if there's actual harm done. That's something that people don't see. But an Australian consumer rights advocacy group, advocacy group called Choice, had they looked at the lengthy jargon and they think it. You know, as we we're just talking about, it conceals strange clauses. It's unfair to expect consumers to wade through them. To highlight just how ridiculous it is, Choice hired an actor named Lawrence to read all seven was 73,198 words of the Amazon Kindle Terms and Conditions.
3: Lawrence Olivier? His name's Lawrence. Oh, okay, Lawrence. Based
2: on the estimation that 500 words is one page, that's 146 pages, and it took poor Lawrence nine hours to read the entire thing. They recorded it. It's all on YouTube. If but, you'd like to watch a guy read the entire term.
1: But for an actor, that's nine hours of work. Yeah. Is
2: it dramatized?
1: <laughs> With music and how much can you dramatize a, <laughs> agreement? Well, maybe
3: there he throws in some character voices. Yeah, maybe I'm he not does sure. other
1: voices. That'd be fun, like a little Mickey Mouse. That's a
3: good knife. point, though. Nine hours of paid work.
2: So, what are the uh, what are the what's the possibility, Matt, that you're going to watch any of the nine hours of this presentation? Uh,
1: I would say less than zero percent.
2: Wow, nice.
1: I don't like those percentages. That's pretty low. I mean, I watch a lot of dumb stuff. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm not watching that dumb stuff.
2: Some dude sitting there reading yeah, to just, whom it may concern. I just
1: hope I don't have to sue Amazon.
2: And it's a Kindle too, so I don't know how yeah. in-depth that is. Mm. At least read something that you own. Say like your phone. Read the terms of agreement on that. Right, right. You have no terms of agreement because you just click OK and move.
1: I'm. I'm yeah. I agree. I'm termless.
2: Want my third child? Here we go.
1: Sounds like the type
3: of legal mess that you would fi- that you would find in your city, Matt.
1: Well, at Townton Abbey, um, my little—I used to call it my village, but it's now a village of forty-five thousand souls, digital souls. And um, I, yeah, I, I have a lot. I'm going. I'm now. That's a great idea. I'm going to create a EULA, an End Users Licensing Agreement. For anyone in my city that if you have a problem, uh, you just need to keep yourself quiet and move to another city.
3: Well, wow. there is one person in your city, at least, who oh. is speaking. I think she's speaking for everybody. And uh, yeah. she makes it sound like it's not that easy to get out of town which is the heart of Taunton Abbey. <laughs> and... Yeah, she uh, really wants to warn other people from entering so why, downtown. So why would I let her do this on my show? Why would I want well, to go she there? She felt like it was a way of protecting her because now that this is out, oh. if something happens to her, uh-huh. then
1: people will know the truth. They'll know what happened. Okay, but before I even listen to her... Um, let's just be clear. I am going to be shifting police coverage and fire coverage in the city in the next few days. So if it so happens that her police coverage, sewage coverage, uh, fire coverage and medical coverage disappears, it I mean no harm. OK. Just based on what you said right
3: there, I think the listeners – will be able to sympathize okay. with this poor
1: citizen. Okay, let's let's listen to her song, I guess.
0: When you're alone and feeling down in the dumps, be grateful you don't live in town town. I have lived here a little less than a year and it really blows. Town, town, Just look at the incompetence of the mayor of the city His power plants and public parks are anything but pretty How did he win? The spies fly much higher here You can't escape all the humming of drones in the air above Town, town You're gonna hate it here Town, town Get out while you can Town, town Everyone's watching you. Town, town, you'd better scurry, there's a mysterious slurry moving down the road. Town, town, don't hang around, the noxious gas will surround you and melt your clothes. Town, town, So head down to the border and immediately cross over Or you'll be decomposing long before the night is over Rotting alive The nights are so scary here So please remember we warned you We told you to steer clear of Town, town A grimy place for sure Town, town Don't stay a minute more Town, town Death is waiting for you. Town, 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 town.
3: Yeah. So she's got some serious, maybe valid concerns about the safety and uh, both, you know, personal safety and also physical safety.
1: No. No, you're denying those allegations. No, I'm not. I I am denying them. She's, um, let's just say. Look, I love B. Arthur more than the next guy. I mean, she's great. It's just that was B. Arthur, right? That's her name. Well, past didn't, actress. Didn't B. Arthur die a decade or so ago. Yeah. Some I think, think we know why now. Well, yeah, no. She, everyone thinks she died. She actually lives in town, Townton Abbey, and that was her because I'd recognize her voice. So a million. I think miles she's away. gone.
3: So either either the slurry got her, or you sent your drones on
1: her. No, we don't have drones yet. By the way, I, I do have drones coming, but so, I don't have drones yet. Um, no, th- this woman, um we'll just call her B, uh, cuz she sings with a really bass voice. Um she's she's wonderful, nice, nice B we call her. And you know, when the cops get a call to her location, they're always like uh it's B and everyone's like okay, cancel and everyone cancels. So we understand who B is. B somehow got a hold of you, probably a relative. And um no offense, but be, there is no slurry in downtown. There is no. We took care of the slurry. The noxious gas? The noxious gas. is. It just depends which way the wind's blowing. You deny the drones are there? The drones do not exist yet. They will be incorporated into the city in the next month or so. So nobody
3: is just spontaneously decomposing there?
1: Well, No. Everyone is composing if decomposing if they want to decompose. No one is decomposing without their choice. To decompose. So you're not uh, you're not preventing people from leaving town. No. It's hey. I I don't have an airport. You're right. I don't have a port. Absolutely. I don't have a train, and I do have a tunnel, but no one seems to use it yet. So I'm not telling anyone they can't leave. They're all free to leave. I just don't know how to open up those areas to let them leave yet. So the feeling hmm. – I'm just as trapped in town as you are, right? Because I'm not going to pay for the upgrades to get you all to leave. So – Just watch out for that slurry. Yeah. I mean I appreciate the song, B. And uh, of course I will have my – let my assistants meet with you if you want to have that One meeting. last time. Yeah. But – uh this, whole, this is a whole mistake because I, I was trying to get a feel for what President Trump is going through by creating my own world, and it's nothing but headaches. Nothing but headaches. So, and um, it is for your citizens too. Yeah, and tell your aunt B hi from me. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, how to stress proof your brain. Is it possible? Life is complicated. Life is stressful. But can you de stress? We'll show you some methods, some tools up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Let's face it, friends, modern times are stressful. Between the mad dash to meetings, the dreaded daily commute, tragedy in the news, and the constant need to do and have more, you may be feeling wound up, irritable, and out of balance. Unfortunately, you can't always avoid the things that stress you out, but uh, you can control how you respond to the stress before it takes over your life. Melanie Greenberg, author of the book Stress-Proof Brain, is here with us this morning to talk uh, about the breakthrough process that will help us put um, to rest some of our unhealthy stress responses. Melanie, thank you for being with us today.
7: Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
1: This is great. So is I, apparently, there is is there now a chill pill that we can take, a pill that will get rid of all the stress?
7: Yeah, it's, it's a several-step pill, five or six steps. Um, but there is there, there are things we can do.
1: This is a brain process, right, you're going to teach us, is how our brain can create, I I guess, new pathways to manage the stress?
7: Exactly. and That's what's exciting, that we found in the past 10 years, because of new technologies, that our brains have neuroplasticity, so you you actually can physically help them grow new neurons and new pathways. You can redirect it and slowly grow positive pathways
1: and is, I mean, I guess this this has been going on in the brain forever. Um, it's just now we're figuring out how, because of the technology, I guess more about how the brain works. And, and is it... Exactly. It's like a brain habit, it sounds like.
7: Exactly. Uh, and you can also try to undo negative brain habits and build in new positive brain habits. It can make you happier and healthier
1: maybe talk to us about what happens in the brain when we are feeling stress, when we're feeling, uh, you know, kind of anxious, out of sorts, what's going on in the brain?
7: So say you're sitting in traffic and you're late and the person in front of you is going really slowly. That would be an example of a situation where you get stressed. So what happens is your fight, flight, freeze response gets triggered. There's a part of your brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala, it's kind of like a fire alarm of your brain, so its role is to identify a situation you have to deal with or a situation that's threatening. So the amygdala starts firing and then you have this whole cascade of hormones and neurotransmitters. Many people have heard of cortisol, mm-hmm. the stress hormone, and it travels through the body gearing you up for battle, basically. Um, so, you know, your blood starts pumping, your heart um, rate gets higher, your breathing gets fast, all the blood goes to your muscles. And so that would be the st- what happens in the brain and the stress response.
1: And this but is supposed to happen, while, right? This is supposed to happen. So, this is a natural process.
7: So, this is supposed to happen because. Uh, our ancestors were fighting lions and tigers. And depending on the kind of stress that you're dealing with, it can be very functional. Like if you're in a dark alley, you hear somebody following you, it's good to be alert like that. Yeah. You have to fight or run. But there are stresses we face today where it's not so functional. Like your boss is giving you feedback, you know, of how you could improve your performance. That isn't so functional to get all like eggs. Angry and triggered, you may say the wrong thing to your boss and lose your job. So, or if you're having, you know, like a text issue or something, so it can interfere with your thinking and can wear you down if the stressor goes on for a long time. Do so people do function in some situations, but not others?
1: Do I guess? I guess everybody then brings kind of a different, uh, a different physiology and anatomy and chemistry and they all handle and feel stress, I guess, differently?
7: Yeah, part of it is your biology. It's your wiring. Some of us are wired for anxiety. Some of us are wired to be more vigilant, more more aware of what's going on around us and kind of alert. And it also depends on your history. So if you've grown up in a stressful environment, you, you tend to be more overactive in your brain you hmm. will be a bit more vigilant to stress and they react more strongly.
1: Yeah, and then, yeah, I mean, if, if you didn't have money growing up, you may have learned that the chase of money is always, you know, life or death. Fight hard for the money.
7: Exactly. Yeah, it feels like survival. It feels like you've if, you are got to starve if you don't have it. That's and a... it can be, be functional. In a, sometimes, you know, you can get very successful in your career if you totally focus like that but it can also
1: interfere with your health. Is it? I guess um, many say, you know, this is a part of life, and you you can almost see some people handle stress a lot better, and then they look at those that are maybe wired for anxiety, and they just don't get. They don't get why, just get over it, man. Move on. Relax. (laughs) Let it go. And so part of understanding the brain, I guess, is you got to know your strengths, and but you also have to be open to how people are different.
7: Yeah, absolutely. We all have different brains. And I think that's compassion. You know, if you can learn compassion, you can learn acceptance. You can get along much better with different kinds of people. But people can't just calm down. It's like a depressed person can't just stop being depressed. Right. The chemical process is it's automatic, and it takes years of work. Um, but there are, there are specific things you can do that can start working in a few weeks.
1: Good. Give us some of those. Start if walking us through that.
7: So the first thing to do is just to slow things down. Um, slow down and breathe, and try to just lengthen your breathing and take deep breaths. And the reason that's effective is because there's another part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. And the prefrontal cortex is kind of like the CEO of the brain. So, you know, that can direct the brain in a more organized, mindful manner to get your goals accomplished. It can calm down the amygdala if it's not appropriate to be all hyped up. Uh, So slowing down and breathing is the first thing anyone should do. And second would be to stay mindful, which means you try to redirect your mind into more of an observer role. Like you may think, hmm, what's happening here? Anger is arising, or I'm tempted to say something mean. Would that be a helpful thing to do right now? But you try to take a step back from the automaticity and become mindful of, you know, where are you, what are you doing and, and what's what would be the most functional thing. Hmm. So you literally consciously redirecting the response. Um, and then there's some other things like broadening your view. When you stress your your mindset automatically narrows and so you get very focused, you know, like hyper focused on just the threat. So if you can take a step back and broaden your view you can calm down because maybe you you have very positive aspects of your life as well. Maybe the stress is temporary. Maybe you have resources and coping skills. So just having a broader view can can help you calm down and and feel better about the whole situation.
1: And that broader view, I guess, that's like perspective, right? That could be you know, realizing that I'm always stressed at uh, this time of year it lasts one month and then I have eleven more months to move on, so it could be something you think it could be uh, it could just be gathering more data to asking better questions, anything I guess that gives you a different or a more complete view
7: exactly and you could try to have a more positive view as well like like I like your example, you could also deliberately think about you dealt with in the past you know, have you dealt with something similar before but mostly you have and you've got through that so you could think of yourself as a person that can deal with stresses
6: mm-hmm.
7: and um, you could practice gratitude you could think of all the people in your life that love you and so that puts the stressor into perspective um, and finally I think you could there's this finding this right mindset where you can actually get in touch with your passion about the situation over it's a challenge at work or some kinds of stresses like that. You can feel your passion and excitement and the potential for growth and learning in the situation. If you can connect with that, then the, the energy boost that you get can actually feel positive.
1: And that, that becomes, I mean, a solution in and of itself just seeing exactly how this event is, is uh, just a part of your deeper passion, your deeper purpose in life.
7: That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so you may be feeling the same brain chemicals, you know, this charge of energy and kind of hyped up, but if you can int- interpret it as passion, that, you know, that can be positive energy that you can direct to do like a really good job. Or to have the energy to stay
1: up late and write your novel, or whatever it is you need to be doing. Yeah, that—that that, we hear a lot of that mindfulness and people bringing it up. It's—I think you've explained it really well. Staying mindful and reflecting into your life more as an observer. I call it a third—you know, third person. And so you're not so caught up in the emotion of it that you can actually look at it, hopefully a little more objectively. Stand away from it, see it, notice it. Um, and humans have the ability to do that. We'll take a break when we come back. We'll continue this discussion with Melanie Greenberg and uh, the idea of, of her book that uh, how to create a stress proof brain. Th- these are ideas, but eventually, when you do it over time, it seems to start creating pathways in your brain that make these activities much more automatic. Powerful learning, folks. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Melanie Greenberg, and uh, she's walking through her book that is here to help us stress-proof the brain, Master Your Emotional Response to Stress Using Mindfulness and Neuroplasticity. She is a media expert on relationships and stress, and today she's walking us through how to get rid of that fight, flight, freeze, kind of stressful, natural response by uh, by by you know taking charge of our life melanie welcome back thank you for again for being with us thank you is um like you're saying this is th- these are very natural things um one thing that just is so funny to me cuz when i teach it to my clients they look at me like that's it but you all yeah. you, you say we got to slow down take some deep breaths because we usually when we're in kind of fight or flight mode or that mode where you feel anxious you're not breathing well like And it's almost like someone's sitting on mm-hmm. your chest. Um, but if you don't have oxygen, then you're not going to be getting the oxygen where it's needed to the brain, um, which is wh- where we need it to be if we're going to get mindful and be present. Is this – this is really just um, – I mean a lot of people when we talk mindfulness, it's Zen, it's Buddhas, it's, it's Buddha. But this is probably why every major faith belief system has some meditative kind of prayer practice, isn't mm-hmm. it? To slow people down.
7: hmm yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You can meditate or pray in many different ways, but it probably, um, for the, from the body point of view, has the same effect. Yeah. Slowing down and, and, you know, connecting with with the peace, with more inner peace.
1: What do we do—so let's say we slow it down, we're breathing— we're thinking it through, we are, we're broadening our view, we're more mindful, um, what else do we do? And how do we, I guess, turn this into more of a, a, a brain habit?
7: So another thing we can do is we can try to find a sense of control. And our brains don't like uncontrollable stress. They don't like lack like of predictability. And you see this across species, you see this in rat studies, you see this in monkeys, and you see it in humans. So if you have, for example, if you expose people to loud noise, which is stressful, um, if one group gets loud noise that they can press a button to turn off, Yeah. and the other group gets loud noise that they, can, they can't turn off, but both groups get the same amount of noise altogether, You'll find a group that can't turn off the noise, gets more stressed, much more stressed, mm. and in rats and, and in fact, like you even see stomach ulcers, for example, over long, um, a while of doing this, so it's a lack of predictability and controllability of brains hate that. Mm. they're supposed to be prediction machines that keep us safe and that keep us alive. and so you, if you can deliberately think about it, which parts of this can I control? Um, and, And sometimes you can't control the situation at all, but you can control your response. Right. So, say you have chronic pain, you may not be able to control the pain. But what you can do is you can learn to focus on trying to live the best life you can, despite the pain. You know, like not letting the pain destroy you. And so in that, your mind can find a sense of control and it can make a big
1: difference. That's great. And, um, and, and then I guess you could take that same model to anything just by asking, what about this can I control?
7: Absolutely, yeah. What can I control and what can't I control? Um, because, and, it's, and you generally can always control how you think about it and just how you focus your attention, what your goal is in that situation. Um, so it's almost like you control, can control a piece of your own mind um, but also, the other piece is not spending too much energy on what you can't control. So it's working on mindfully accepting the pieces that you really can't control. Because what we do is we worry and we ruminate and we drive ourselves crazy, wondering what's going to happen. So say you went for a job interview or you're unemployed. You know, you can sit and worry about it all day and all night, but ultimately there's a piece of it that's just not up to you. Hmm. And so you need to, in a way, learn to let go of that and not make that the main focus of your attention.
1: Is there, have you found a, a very effective way for somebody that does ruminate or, or you know, stir in the thought? Have you thought of, found ways to actually help them let go of the thought?
7: Yeah. I'd say I, You can call it defusing from the thought. It's one way to think of it. I think it's, it's how you view your own thoughts in a way so we get fused with our thoughts in that we think our thoughts are our whole reality we think we are our thoughts and when we have negative thoughts we uncritically accept them hmm. they're so fast and automatic it's that we just believe them we just buy into them we don't realize there's another way to look at things and so defusing from your thoughts we try trying to create some distance that this is a thought this is not necessarily true So some things you might say is, say you're having a thought, I'm a loser. If you just put the sentence before it, I'm having a thought that I'm a loser, you immediately get a bit of distance. You know, it means that it's a hypothesis, it's a suggestion, it's not necessarily true.
6: Hmm.
7: Um, So you can say to yourself when you, you have a thought, you can slow it down. You can say, is this thought True. And then some thoughts are true, but they're not helpful. So you know, it's, it's like maybe in the job interview that you may not get the job. Well, that's true, but it's not helpful. So then you can also ask, "Is this thought helpful to me hmm. or harmful?" If it's harmful, then it's important to distract your attention and try to you know find something else to focus on.
1: That's great, and it's um, the I guess the funny thing about this. This is just. You know, we spend so much time in the gym working out and getting strong. This is just brain (laughs) exercises, right? This is just getting your brain in shape.
7: Like your mind vitamins. Yeah, it it really is.
1: It is. Is is the idea that if we do this long enough and we do it consistently, that eventually the brain will start doing it automatically for us? Yeah,
7: that's exactly right. Because it's a saying that... um, Neurons that fire together wire together, so our brain it's, it's efficient so it gets into patterns and sequences, so once you have one thought and it, it's linked, it gets linked to other thoughts that happen at the same time, and you know that can go to the negative or it can go to the positive. Um, so when it goes to the negative, you might you might think, "Oh, I, you know, I did a bad job on that um, talk, um, and then you might think, then it might automatically go to, oh, you're a loser. You never, you always mess up. You, you're incompetent. and So it can go to the negative if you have a depressed brain. But you can also train it, if, you, if you're training in positive thoughts and hopeful thoughts, eventually you'll get a positive sequence. So okay. it might be, oh, I'm so stressed. Um, and then it might be, it's okay, I've got this. You know I'm a good coper. I've dealt with a lot of stuff i'm resilient you know I'm going to turn this around and and so then that sequence can become automatic if you if you practice it enough over a month
1: is i mean I guess
7: for some people the, the,
1: this is um this this and it also takes energy this this isn't this is not something i mean I think we just assume everyone's born with this but born in no, you know, just you're either born healthy or or unhealthy, but it seems like we're all just born different, and every human needs to to kind of spend some time figuring out how they work.
7: Absolutely. I mean, it can be the most powerful thing you ever do. And the negative doesn't go away easily because the negative's been wired into your brain often by childhood stuff. And, and your brain's trying to protect you, so it's kind of it clings to the negative. So part of it is, during, while, while you're practicing, is understanding that the negative will come up, and you may not be able to stop the negative thoughts completely, but it's, it's a, a bit more like, oh, it's acceptance. Okay, that's there, but I don't have to buy into it. I can redirect.
1: Mm. That's great. You, I guess... Um As we wrap up, one of the points that you do mention and and talk about is self-compassion when it comes to stress. Maybe just uh, give us a little bit of understanding on self-compassion and and what's the most important thing we can do to be self-compassionate.
7: Thank you for bringing that up, because it's also a very powerful part. When we're under stress, we tend to be very hard on ourselves. We're either hard-driving and demanding you know, like, you don't get to sit down and you've got too much to do. You, know, you don't get to eat. <laughs> um, or we can be hard on ourselves in another way. Like, you know, you're you messed up. That's why you've got in a situation. What's wrong with you? Can, you know, Talk to ourselves very, very meanly. And so self-compassion is also just slowing down and, and trying to learn to be kinder to ourselves. Um, like, you know, would we be saying this to our child? Would we be saying this to our... Our friends. Um, so you might think, you know, if this was someone you loved, would you be talking to them this way? And, you know, that often we can be much kinder to other people than we can to ourselves. Right. And then the other thing is a sense of common humanity, realizing we're only human and, you, you know, none of us are finished products. We're all in process. We've got to make some mistakes and that's okay. And we've got to allow it. Um, so, those are two elements of self compassion
1: that 's great, and we really need more of that right? It seems like it 's just too easy to beat ourselves up to to hurt ourselves, and then inevitably we end up hurting others so that 's why I think it's so needed melanie what you're doing and I appreciate your time great insight again um Everybody, really, we can all do better uh, in at managing these things. the stress proof brain master your emotional response to stress using mindfulness and neuroplasticity melanie greenberg 's her name go check out the book, find it out, and let 's get on this journey, especially if you notice that stress is getting you down it 's beating you up then it 's time to pick ourselves up. This is the matt Townsend show we 're giving you the tools we just can 't do it for you. We'll be right back, folks. When we come back, we're talking about how to declutter your digital life. That may de-stress you as well. Hey, folks, technology has a dramatic influence on our daily lives, doesn't it? We depend on it for our professional lives to complete essential job functions. We rely on it, digital devices in our personal lives to stay connected with the outside world. But sometimes all of this leads us to, you know, be making less human connections and more dependency on technology. Caitlin Thomas is here, one of our great producers, to talk about how we can keep our connections meaningful and out of uh I guess out out of the digital media, pole zone. zone. Good to have you here, Caitlin.
8: The little zone. I mean, because me really,
1: we you'd think that I'd be able to connect more effectively with my wife with technology, well, I except think yeah. Not and I think in some case. ways
8: they do. You know, what got me thinking about this was I saw this insane commercial. Now, I'm trying not to judge, but I am I am judging. Yeah. It's this Japanese company, and they're making this new you, – you know, like those Amazon Echo speakers, yeah. Alexa speakers? It's kind of like that, but it actually has like, like those – you know, like in Star Wars when the people are talking, they like show up and they look like – Like a hologram. Like a hologram. Yeah. So they have a little Japanese anime girl hologram machine, uh-huh. and it's the Japanese – Man's girlfriend. And she's connected to his phone, so she'll text him randomly throughout the day, and then she'll text him and say, Hey, like, honey, when are you coming home? And then when he says, I'm five minutes away, like in the commercial, he like looks up at his apartment and the light turns on and you think it's like his girlfriend. And then he walks in and it's a hologram and she just stands there and and he talks to her and confides Uh, in her. And then she, yeah, she talks to him and she makes him feel better. And then um, he goes to sleep and she tells him goodnight. Sounds like we don't even need a girlfriend. So exactly. He doesn't need a girlfriend anymore because he's getting all this like social connection through this hologram. And so my family and I were sitting talking and we're like, this, there's something not right about that. That mm-hmm. just doesn't sit right with us at our house. But are we really that far off? Like how much time do we spend like when we go out with friends and... We take a photo and we post like a photo saying, oh, I love all of my friends. But we spent most of the night on our phone not actually talking to totally, our friends. Totally. So we're just kind of lying. So yeah. anyways, I found this really awesome podcast that was done. It was actually done by Mormon.org, but it was done by someone who from outside of the Mormon church. Yeah. And I thought it was really awesome what he had to say. He gave us some tips on how to declutter or digitalize. Give us some of them. So the first one he says is to clean up your email inbox, deleting old messages and creating folders to sort it through. And only keep two emails, one for personal, one for work, because if you have more than two, then you're going to start spending way too much time yeah, you're chasing checking it. emails. Yeah. And then keeping organized allows you to stay farther away from it. You don't need to be there every day.
3: Yeah, but if we don't have more than two emails, then how do we keep getting the free trials and all these memberships yeah, he like Amazon said, Prime? Yeah, to That's unsubscribe
8: to the stuff that you're not using. Um, he says delete your old media. You don't need content and stuff. From the past, no. like if you're not using it anymore, unsubscribe or delete it, and spend time living in the present, and don't keep simplify, stuff from the simplify, past. Yeah. yeah. Organizing your desktop, um, sort through documents on your laptop or computer, and remove items you don't need. Um, simplifying your desktop by ridding it of clutter will make it less overwhelming to find folders. That's and what I was just talking programs.
1: to Terry about that. That sometimes I'll go to my phone. I know I need to be there, and. I even know what I need to do, like pull up my, a song that my son yeah. just did. But mm-hmm. I can't, can't. find it. I, my brain's like, well, which icon, which app, which, which? Uh, uh-huh. too much stuff. So if I only had like three things. Yeah, and music.
8: you spend less time looking on it. So essentially, yeah. you're spending less time on your phone. Um, he says, removing distracting apps and turning off. like notifications for apps that you don't need. And he said you can have organizing your apps on your phone Uh because you can have different screens that you can slide past. And he says have one screen for the apps you use the most frequently at home, second screen reserved for apps you use when you're at work or away from the home, and then the third screen for your miscellaneous stuff. So you have three screens and you know exactly where to go wherever you are so you don't have to be on it and you don't have to be looking at it so often. Um he also suggested organizing your passwords and your login information. Oh, so, that's deleting the old worst. accounts that you don't need. Yeah. He says, deactivating accounts. And he says, keep track of your relevant login information in a password database, like on a spreadsheet or in a notebook. Don't put it in your phone because, in case yeah. it gets lost, you know, you don't want anyone to find that stuff. But he said a spreadsheet. And I thought, oh, wow, that was kind of a genius. Okay. Well,
1: and there's and now there's all these. Uh, Apps that will hold all your passwords for you and put them in for you. All you have to do is just remember one digit. And then blackmail you if you try to cross it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a little (laughs) blackmail.
8: Weekly digital cleanups. He says make time each week to stay organized but deleting your old media. Mm -hmm. So again, going through every week. Don't do it every month. Do it every week so that you spend less time looking for things. And then disconnecting weekly. He said find a time each week to... Um, Spend time away from the digital world.
1: Have a tech fast.
8: Have a tech fast. Spend time with friends and family, face to face, talking to people, keeping those connections alive. And (laughs) that's good thinking. Relevant and not going to dinner and posting photos saying, I love my friends, but never actually talking to your friends.
1: See, Caitlin, that's why we need
8: you. Declutter your digital lives, people.
1: Nailed it. (laughs) Thanks, Caitlin. Appreciate it. We'll take a break, my friends. Learning a lot helping you live this crazy life we all have. We'll be back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we help you. Uh, we help you live your life. For heaven's sakes, we give you the latest, greatest research, the information you need to know about how to make it through this crazy thing we call life. And who better to do it than with Jeffrey Simpson and of course Terry South. In fact, today ah, I got great news for bad news for Terry, but um, it's going to be a really good lesson for you. Uh-oh. Everybody, you got to stick around for hour number 3 of the show cuz we're talking about superheroes and how destructive they are to little boys. Fake news. it's not they're not destructive but it doesn't make children more uh service oriented more giving and superhero like it actually just makes them a little more aggressive which may explain terry what it you are a superhero wannabe
2: well i didn't grow up
1: i know that's super oh
2: sorry Right. So as a yeah. child, my formative years weren't influenced by this necessarily. There was I a lot of G.I. Joe. So maybe there was. I we'll, don't know. we'll have to ask our professor later um, if. No, may... Never mind. There was plenty. I, now that I think about yeah. it, yeah. it's not superheroes like there are today, but there's a lot of cartoons and robots. And That's unfortunate
3: like that. because he probably could have developed some sort of superhero
1: powers oh, had sure. he been able to start early enough. Well, I think we've I identified Terry. As a super cynic, is it that is, your
2: superhero it, it, power? It is my, probably my superhero power.
1: I mean, really, and I believe cynicism is a good thing for us to have a little bit of it. You, you have a healthy dose, a good, a good healthy dose of it.
2: I try to dial it back. People get tired of
1: it.
3: You do, but... What would your superpower be? My superpower? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, intuition. Tuition? Intuition. Oh, intuition. Yeah, paying tuition for my children. Superpower! That is basically a superpower. I'm very intuitive. I have good discernment. That's Mm. my superpower. I can read people like a book. I also have a superpower ability to sleep once my earplugs are in. My superpower would
3: probably involve uh, being able to function on only a couple hours of sleep.
1: Really? Really? Yeah. I, I do not possess that power. Oh, you're a great gift, then. That is a good gift. We, we've got a lot to talk about. And we'll use our superpowers throughout the entire show. Why not? Uh, including when Donald Trump says we are going to, you know, make America great again and get this economy flying. Is that rhetoric? And does, does any president even know how to get the economy going again. There's been a lot of theories, supply side theories. There's been, hey, let's educate them up, make them more creative theories. And in reality, they're finding out none of them really have moved the economy
2: much. It's always forces beyond the president that moved the economy. Like President uh, Clinton took a lot of credit for the economy finishing right. on a high note with sort of a tech dot-com increase that explosion happened. but that really had nothing to no. do with him well
1: and then a year or two or three later there was a dot-com implosion yeah so
2: and it, no one rushed to take the uh, fall for that one either so
1: but we spend a lot of money on policies and you can have a short-term gain mm-hmm. by injecting you know a lot of money
2: there was president bush had the uh what the he had a tax plan everyone got right. a rebate yeah and what did people do? They put the money in, mm-hmm. in savings. They didn't go and spend it like he wanted to. Uh,
1: President Obama spent money on, the, on um, energy resources and conservation. And what did people do with that money? They went and bought golf carts. Yes. And instead of buying like an electric vehicle to drive to work, they, drove, they bought an extra electric vehicle to drive around their house. Yeah. Their houses were so big with McMansions. Remember all that fun? So our guest today is basically saying, "Ah, we don't really know how to move the economy or the economies would all be moving and would be moving more than one and a half percent consistently. In the 50s, they knew how to do it or did they? Or was Hmm. that just the IBM mainframe computers kicking in or whatever? And starting – just the IBM movement may have helped a little bit.
2: So because of that, computers, people were more productive Well,
1: and and that actually was proven false apparently. That was false too. Wow. It it, it may have been – this is sad and crazy. Yeah. It may have been computers were created. They printed more paper. Oh. Which generated a really weird false economy and a paper became an explosive value-add concept. Huh. You would think the internet would be – Killing and making our economy boom, but there's actually no data showing the internet is actually making the economy boom. Right. Weird. You'd think cell phones would make our economy boom, but there's no data yet. Just showing. the cell phones themselves at yeah, times. you'd think. Yeah. No. So we'll get to it. It's a pretty interesting little discussion coming up. By the way, he, uh, uh, an economist will be joining us and a historian. Very deep, 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 deep article. Deep. We had to, I mean, we had to get some shovels out. So deep, we were shoveling.
2: And I listened to it with Siri. But some people find his conclusions controversial.
1: Absolutely. Because why not? Well, and also because...
2: It wouldn't be interesting.
1: People running for office want you to think they know what they're doing.
2: Right. Right. They're a lawyer. They know the economy. We know the economy. Right. We'll get to all this fun. All
1: that ahead... Plus, uh, McKenna Baus, Baus in the house, will be joining us with a little mind bender trying to get us to just open up our minds a bit. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's
2: going on around the rest of the world? MSNBC teased last night that they had attained the first two pages of President Donald Trump's 2005 tax returns that were sent to investigative reporter David Clay Johnson, who has been on the show before. Uh, As they revealed this information, Donald Trump, uh, they revealed that he had earned more than $150 million dollars in twenty oh five paid just a small percentage of that in regular federal income taxes. The document showed Trump and his wife Melania paid five point three million in regular federal income taxes, a rate of four percent. However, the Trump's paid an additional thirty-one million in the alternative minimum tax. Trump has previously called for that tax to be eliminated because as you can see there's a uh, because he paid it yeah everything so far looks legal the white house said in a statement it is totally e- uh, illegal to steal and publish tax ah, returns totally. david clay johnson appeared on abc this morning he talked about what the documents don't tell us about president trump
4: well he doesn't tell us Who Trump is beholden to? I mean, we know, for example, that he owes money to Deutsche Bank, which is deeply involved in money laundering for the Russians. Uh, He owes money to the communist uh, bank in China, the Bank of China, which is also the largest tenant in Trump Tower. Maybe a U.S. president who's in hock to a bank in China. Um, We don't know who he's getting his revenue from. We don't know who his partners are or who he's done business with in foreign countries. And that could have major national security implications.
2: So to sum things up, the White House says the documents are real. President Trump says the story's fake. Well,
1: and illegally obtained, but so real that he paid more taxes, like, double well yeah. double what Obama paid. Right. So, so it's real enough to, like, make comments like
2: that about, but fake enough that you shouldn't trust it. In the end, there's really no story. It shows that he paid his taxes.
1: And paid his taxes 11 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah.
2: Good job. Good, Way to go. Good job. Uh, if you want to hear that inter- interview we did, that Matt talked with uh, David Clay Johnson. I put that out on our Twitter feed Sweet. this morning. That was it's cool. It's from September we talked with him. Uh, defending Republican health care proposal Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer declared that no one, there is no one who doesn't benefit from the plan. Spicer's claim came on the heels of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office's report released Monday that found more than 24 million additional Americans may no longer have health insurance by 2026 under the GOP-backed American Health Care Act. This is it, Spicer said of the GOP plan. If we don't get this through, the goal of repealing Obamacare and instituting a system that will be patient-centered is going to be unbelievably difficult. claiming things a lot of we already know. FBI Director James Comey will say on Wednesday whether his agency is investigating ties between President Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia. According to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, the Rhode Island Democrat announced the impending decision Tuesday. He said Comey made the promise to both himself and Senator Lindsey Graham during a March 2nd meeting. Whitehouse said... uh, Comey assured the two senators he would confirm if an investigation exists and the scope of their Russia-Trump investigation because he had not been able to, at that point, say if there was one. So Hmm. there may be an announcement or maybe not. Or maybe not. And finally. Yes. I believe by now most people have seen this video of the guy on BBC reporting. Talking yeah. about South Korea and yeah. his kids come barging in the room. They actually <laughs> talked to the media yesterday. Oh, I know. Let's hear what they said. So it says, The couple behind the latest viral sensation is speaking out for the first time, explaining the series of missteps that led to the adorable clip of two children crashing his dad's BBC interview. While Professor Robert Kelly did the interview over Skype from his home office, his wife, Kim Jong-ae, was in the other room with the couple's two children. Uh, recording the interview from the TV using her phone. They tell the Wall Street, this is all through the Wall Street Journal, when the four-year-old Marion saw her father on screen, she got excited, like oh, recognizing cute. the room uh, that he was speaking from. She ran off to find him <laughs> without her mother noticing. The eight-month-old brother, James, quickly followed her In his baby walker. And because of a (laughs) slight delay, Kim didn't see the children appear on screen until they'd already been in the room for a few moments.
1: She's recording and she saw him
2: on screen. She looks up and goes, Oh, man. That would have, uh, you know. So Kelly takes full responsibility for the uh, incident. He usually Uh. locks the door when he does these interviews from his office. Kelly and Kim feared he might not be invited for any more interviews. Oh, come on. But the BBC quickly saw the clip's potential and asked Kelly if they could run the clip online. He initially declined, then agreed. He found himself having to put. His phone on airplane mode the following <laughs> day as it blew up with notifications. That's the couple sad. says Marion and James didn't get in trouble. Yes, I was mortified, but I also want my kids to feel comfortable coming home to me, Kelly sure. says. I mean, it was, a, it was terribly cute. The couple also explained Marion's sassy walk as she entered the office. She was in a hippity-hoppity mood that day because she just <laughs> celebrated her birthday at school.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, see, a per, that, is, that is the perfect example of making family work. You know what? This can only help this guy's career. Well, yeah.
3: More think. people are going to become aware of his work That's and who
2: he is. Some of the interview clips are, are nuts from him and his family talking about it because as they're trying to talk, the kids are like his, his baby son's his hands are everywhere, pushing him in the face. Yeah. And the daughter just all of a sudden, he asks her a question. She looks at the camera and just goes, rah or something. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this is my life, people. This is how I live.
1: You know what? That's uh, that why I think it went so viral is everyone relates to it. wouldn't you
3: love it if your kids just came storming into the studio right now yeah they'd probably just be asking you for money though or for your to borrow your car
1: can i borrow your car and do you have 20 dollars? they're not so cute anymore yeah that's the funny thing about see god makes babies really cute Mm. right because if they just came as teenagers there'd be a lot of abandoned children He gives you enough time to fall in love with these little critters. The wife is the one I feel bad about because she was trying to do the job of recording. And imagine her shock when all of a sudden the kids appear in her recording. Yeah. Then she has to drop the recording. And she came in faster than anybody and had to then remove the children on her knees. She slid across the floor. (laughs) Don't they just have a DVR, though?
3: Who knows? Like why She she was was making like
1: an Insta moment. She was probably going to hmm. get that out on Instagram because that's how you do it today. Did you not know that, Jeffrey? That's, that's what the it. kids are doing? Yeah. Hey, it's, uh, it's the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March.
2: Caesar must die, die,
1: die. Wow. Whoa. Did you hear something? No. Is that why when I walked in, you're like, et tu, Brute? did you say that to
2: me?
3: Yeah, and I uh, I hid the knife that I was holding.
2: Well, he was also like, Matt, could you turn around and just look at the wall for a second? Matt, look at
3: the television. Just look over there. And then I hear this, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> yeah. And then there was a, a slight pain in your back, but mm-hmm. it actually took care of the, the bigger pain that you were experiencing.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: And then because it's Jeff, he starts quoting random movies and he goes, that's not a knife. And then it's weird. That wasn't bad.
1: And then the whole thing got really weird. Uh, It was uh, the 15th of March was marked by several religious observances and became notorious as the date of the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. by Brutus. That Brutus. You mean it didn't just happen in the play? No. Like this no. really happened. Yeah, this really okay. happened. Uh, there are a couple references made when we are speaking of the great betrayer. One, of course, took 30 pieces of silver to turn in Jesus Christ, a Christian um, myth. Hmm. That's what this says. Yeah. Uh, I actually don't know it as a myth. But um, the other, often equally reviled, certainly by Dante, was Marcus Junius Brutus Minor, known most uh, to most as Brutus, who betrayed Julius Caesar.
3: So, there you have it. Et tout Brute. That's a shame. Imagine how much better Caesar salads would be.
1: Great point. Really good point. We lost him too early. <laughs> if only he could have lived a little longer. The, the Caesar salad would be so much better. Um, see, this is the insight you don't get on every other show. Only on this show i got another little piece of insight. So I listen to articles yes, with my Siri-like voice machine on my phone. I don't know what we call it. It's, I think a, fun- that's,
2: it's a function of the iPhone. I
1: but, think it's the Siri-like voice machine is actually what it's called. That's what I think they call it. I'm starting to be quite disappointed with her because, for example— It's all monotone for one, right? It's all monotone, and it seems like her vocabulary is regressing.
2: Yeah. A lot of people have the same yeah. uh, feel about most of the automated assistants on phones. It, They're not progressing it, fast enough. It
1: told me to polish my resume, you and know, I'm like, what? I what?
3: think she's spending too much time on social media. Yeah, probably. And that's what
1: happens. I think she's, I think she's got a, an issue, like a drug issue. She I, instead of polishing my resume, I'm supposed to polish my resume. Instead of a superhero, it's a superhero. a superhero, superhero. yeah <laughs> Which I'm not against a superhero, or even the superhero combo platter. Mmm, I'm good either way. But Siri, pick up your game. Apple, pick up your game, for heaven's sakes. That's all you need to know. Happy Ides of March. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, the golden age. Was there ever really an economic golden age in the United States? Well, post-World War II, there was. How come we haven't been able to create another one of those? And is Donald Trump actually going to be capable of doing it? We'll have an economist uh, giving his insight. Stick with us. Make America Great Again was the war cry of President Donald Trump, and this phrase is often associated with America's dipping economy. Mark Levinson shares in his book An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post-War Boom and Return of the Ordinary Economy, how this dipping economy might not be reversible. Mark is on air with us today to talk about some of his insights. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for being with us today.
4: Hello,
1: Matt. Glad to be with you. To, now, you're an economist, a historian, and um, I, I read a, an article you put out and I thought, holy cow, we, we may have been sold a bill of goods for many, many years about the economy. I, is, it, is it your contention that really there's very little that economists know to do to actually fix the economy?
4: Uh, I think that that's, what, what you're saying is, is on track. Uh, My contention here is that we had, really in the quarter century after World War II, uh, up until 1973, extremely strong economic growth in the United States and all around the world. And we've taken that as normal. We've taken that as our benchmark. Mm. Uh, The economy ought to perform that way all the time. But in fact, that was abnormal. Uh, And... and It was exceptional and it was nice. Our living standards rose really very nicely, and and people got much better off during that period. But normal economic growth, historically, is fairly slow economic growth. It's a percent and a half, two percent a year. It's not bad, but it's nothing like the four or five or six percent a year that uh, some people were promising in the presidential campaign, for
1: example. (laughs) Right. So really, I mean, if we stay at one and a half percent, it's pretty normal.
4: Yes, historically, it's really quite normal. Here's the thing, you know, when when the economy is growing at, say, uh, five percent around the world, the average growth rate was really five percent a year between uh, forty-eight and seventy-three. When the economy is growing at that rate, uh, then your living standard doubles in fourteen years. Mm. It quadruples in twenty years, twenty-eight years. And so, uh, an individual can see, I mean, imagine you're over the course of, of your childhood and young adulthood, your family's living standard has quadrupled and, and you can feel that. You can feel that in a, in better housing, in a better car, in new appliances, in vacations. It, you know, your living standard rises in all kinds of ways. When the economy is expanding at 2% a year, it takes about 35 years to double, mm. not 14 years. Yeah. So, so growth is really slow, and you don't necessarily feel yourself getting better off year by year. And I think that lies at the root of a lot of the political discontents that you can uh, see are, are palpable now in the United States and in other countries too. They have very much the same problem.
1: Was what made the post you know World War Two war boom possible? Was it the hole that we had dug? Uh, you know, giving everything and all of our resources to this war? Or what made it possible?
4: Well, people normally associate the post-war boom with reconstruction, but that's not actually the case. What made our economy and the world economy grow so quickly in the post-war world was that there was remarkable productivity growth. Productivity growth is is kind of a complicated concept. It sounds very academic, but you can think of it basically as the average that A person produces in an hour of work. That's sort of a measure of productivity. And uh, after the war, there were a lot of things that could be done by governments uh, and by the private sector that raised productivity very, very quickly. Uh, Just to give you a couple of examples, we had millions upon millions of people working in very low productivity agricultural jobs uh, after the war. In the United States, people don't remember this. In the United States, we had 3 million mules on farms at the end of World War II. (laughs) There were a lot of people out there doing very low productivity work. We were able to take that labor and move it into uh, other sectors, especially manufacturing. So somebody who had been plowing a field behind a mule was suddenly tending a very expensive machine. Enormous productivity gains from that sort of thing. We built the interstate highway system. Uh, Interstate highway has made it possible for businesses to ship goods longer distances. It made it possible for workers to uh, commute longer distances to find better jobs. So we had better functioning uh, product markets, labor markets. There were a lot of economic gains from that. And we had very, very rapid increases in education levels after the war. Uh, The GI Bill helped. We spent very heavily on building up our colleges and universities after the war. And so the average education level in the United States rose very quickly. Uh, All of those things brought us very, very strong productivity growth for a prolonged period. The problem is that once you've picked this low-hanging fruit, you've picked it. You can't do it again. So yes, we can now go back and build a new exit on the interstate, but that's not going to have the same effect on productivity as building the interstate in the first place. That's true. That's sort of where we are.
1: So then um, when we hear I mean, again, if President Trump keeps his word and can get all of these jobs back to middle America, it's not necessarily going to increase productivity growth. It will bring more revenues in, but um, it won't necessarily increase the growth. We, I guess, need some other kind of transcendent innovation.
4: Well, I think that's right. Productivity growth can can come in a couple of ways. One is that the government can certainly help by making investments in education, in transportation, in uh, R&D. Um the, you know, those are are positive things. Uh the the difficulty with that from a political point of view is that the payoff is very uncertain. We know right now that if we spend money on research and development, in the long run, it's very likely to be positive for productivity growth. Is that going to happen during the term of anyone who's now in the U.S. government? Um, we don't know. We yeah. really don't have any idea how quick the payoff is. Uh, we also have uh, productivity growth coming out of the private sector, and and that's really the key. You know, uh, you have new technologies, and, and people tend to associate. Growth and and productivity with new technology, but it's really not the technology that matters. It's how private companies take the technology and use it to change the way they're doing business. Hmm. Those things happen unexpectedly. Uh, you know, we got a boost in productivity in the late 1990s. Why? Well, research uh, and development that had gone on 30 and 40 years earlier into communications. And uh, information processing came together, and we had the Internet boom. Okay? Right. This was not because of investments that we made in the 1990s. This was because of investments we made in the 1950s and 1960s. And finally, pieces had come together, and businesses started figuring out how to uh, take this technology and use it to advantage. So these things happen quite unexpectedly, and they don't fit political timetables.
1: Interesting, and I mean, I guess this this goes back to because we hear it a lot, kind of in within the talking head world, uh, trickle down economics, Reaganomics. You know, Reagan had a had a view a vision of how we're going to do it, uh, get the money back, I guess, into the into the business owners, and then those and they'll create profits with it, and it'll trickle down. Many argue that didn't work. The other idea of government creating, you know, better, stronger educational systems were promised a lot of different things. D- do you sense that it's something that really our our governing bodies can do much about? Or as as you're saying, is it more about the businesses creating innovation?
4: Well, here's the story in my book, An Extraordinary Time. Uh, and, and this is a very international book because we had much the same development in many other countries. We had this rapid productivity growth uh, after the war in uh, within a growing welfare state. People were generally quite happy with that. At the end of 1973, economic growth started to slow down very rapidly because of poor productivity growth. And all of a sudden, this social liberal welfare state model seemed to be unable to deliver the goods anymore. So people turned to other models. Some countries tried uh, what we would call conservative economic models, Reagan, Thatcher, uh, Helmut Kohl in Germany, models that said, okay, you cut taxes, you try to reduce regulations, uh, and uh, you, you, you provide uh, some kind of uh, incentives for for the private sector, you shrink government. Well, those models didn't increase uh, productivity growth at all. They, they did not work for that purpose. You had an attempt in France, people forget this now, to have a more traditionally socialist government to deal with poor productivity growth. That was a disaster. Mm. Uh, that didn't work either. So it's it's not like people haven't tried different things. We've had different models used in, in different countries. and And the bottom line is, that in the short-term government really can't do much about productivity growth. There, there are no buttons, no levers. There's nothing that somebody in Washington can do to, say, make the economy grow faster. Uh, we like to think that the government has control over things like this, and it doesn't.
1: And, and interestingly, um, yet you we, we even hear it in the rhetoric of this week, you know, regulation, regulatory management, if we could just cut back on a lot of the regulations, and the taxation issues of our corporations, it would then spur or spark some of this creativity. Um, do, you, do you sense those avenues have any leverage to, to create productivity increase?
4: We certainly tried that in the 1980s, for example, and uh, people are surprised when they hear this, but of the lower marginal tax rates in the 1980s under President Reagan – uh, did not increase productivity. Productivity was not better during the Reagan years than it had been in the earlier years. Uh, so w- the, the rate of productivity growth did not pick up because of that. It's not clear that uh, marginal tax rates are particularly important in increasing productivity. Uh, some of the strongest productivity growth that we had in the United States was back in the 50s when we had very, very high tax rates, far higher than today. Uh, as for regulations, there are probably some regulations that stand in the way of productivity growth. There may well be some regulations that actually encourage productivity growth. Mm. And uh, what uh, the the putting this out as a general proposition, fewer regulations will bring us higher productivity. Uh, I don't think that stands up.
1: Right, right. You know, uh, it's just it's fascinating, Mark. And I, I think. It it may bring us to a space where we need to rethink our expectation. A lot of this sounds like. Um, let's take a break. Come back. Mark Levison is joining us. He is the author of The Golden Age: An Extraordinary Time, the end of the post uh, uh, the end of the post war boom and a return of the ordinary economy. He is um, he is an economist and uh, formerly finance and economics editor of the Economist magazine in London. He's teaching us that maybe. It's not our political leaders that are going to create this boon again and uh, what, what maybe we need to be doing to um, either manage our expectation or look toward what might be the next, uh, the next generator, the next synergy creating moment. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Joining us is Mark Levinson. He is the author of the book, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post-War Postwar Boom and the Return of the Ordinary Economy. And he's here to walk us through what an extraordinary time we had, basically, I guess, from about the 50s to the 80s, early 80s, late 70s. Um, But those times don't necessarily mark what's normal. And, Mark, walk us through uh you don 't want this to be hopeless, right? I mean the economy's still rolling along one and a half uh hopefully, if we could get it to two percent we we probably ought to be happy with that
4: sure I, and and i 'm definitely not hopeless um, i you know the economy is by no means shrinking uh people 's incomes in general are rising uh they 're not rising at the pace that we would like them to rise right i think the the issue here is really not that that uh, people are sinking it 's that we're not, we don 't see ourselves getting better off year to year we 're not confident that our children are going to be a whole lot better off than we are and and that 's really a, a different issue. I think we 've really got a case where uh, expectations have outrun the possibilities and and you know this is a problem for politicians, certainly uh, now let, let me make uh, an important distinction here uh, in the short term say, out over the next year, year and a half, the government has a lot of ability to affect the rate of economic growth. Okay, If, if we get a, a huge tax cut, if we get a big increase in government spending, uh, if we get a big cut in interest rates or something like that, uh, you know, for a while the economy will do very nicely, not for very long, but for a brief while. But, but over the long run, uh, the economy's growth really depends on productivity growth, and that's where the government really doesn't have too much control.
1: Do do we I mean, so I mean, that's interesting, because some of the things President Trump, uh, I mean, he was already taking credit for jobs, and the stock market within the first month. Um, but these are, I guess, any changes government really makes will be will tend to be short lived. Um, and, and then it's really more up to the businesses uh, to do something. Do we, do we, are we innovating? Are we um, energizing the work and are we getting better and better at creating productivity growth, or is that stagnant as well, just as a business leader?
4: Uh, in, in the business sector, productivity growth has been relatively slow, uh, certainly compared to what it's been in the past. Uh, but again, this happens because uh, of, of uh, outside forces and, and new technology. And so w- when something new comes along, uh, it takes a while. For, for businesses to adapt it. I mean, the, the famous uh, story in, in economic history uh, is how uh, modern electricity uh, was developed uh, in the 1870s and the 1880s with Thomas Edison's work, and it found its way into U.S. factories in the 1920s. Okay? There is a time lag here. And just because there's a new innovation, businesses don't throw out all of their existing equipment. They don't close down all of their existing factories and build new ones. It takes a while to figure out how to put these sorts of innovations to good use. Yeah. It is entirely possible that there are innovations coming that will lead to uh, very large increases in productivity. Uh, let me give you an example. There is a lot of talk now about a virtual reality. Well, at the moment, virtual reality is something you play games with, okay? It's not really something that's used much in the business sector. Is it possible that virtual reality has a lot of implications for business? Is it possible this technology will change the way in which business is done in some industries? I suppose so. If that happens, it could have a very significant impact and and speed up productivity growth and speed up our economic growth. Mm. Or, Or take a look at something like artificial intelligence. Uh, Artificial intelligence is is just really starting to come into use. And obviously, people have different understandings of exactly what that term means. But is it possible that uh, artificial intelligence is going to change the way in which a lot of companies do business? Will it let them produce uh, products and services more efficiently? That's entirely possible. Uh, If that happens, then we could get a burst of productivity growth. So I don't mean to be uh, pessimistic here. I'm, I'm really not pessimistic at all. Uh, but uh, I am uh, convinced that government's overpromise here because when this is going to happen, how this is going to happen is not something governments really control. It's, uh, productivity growth is mainly the result of these changes made in the private sector on an unpredictable schedule. Mm.
1: And you could even—I mean, we we always hear about uh, the education system in China, and so—and for so many of them in China. They're so much further ahead of us in STEM and other uh, areas. And I think, I wonder if, so, I mean, these things can impact us on a, on a, in a way. They're positive. They improve our, 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 our personal economic growth. But really, it sounds like what we need is our innovations, major innovations. And then I'm assuming the countries that are most prepared would then handle innovation and handle the innovations more effectively productive well,
4: productivity productivity is not a zero-sum game okay just because the chinese uh, become more productive and more skilled doesn't mean that oh that hurts us right so i think we have to be really careful there uh it's very clear that having a more educated workforce is very important to productivity growth i think that there's really no debate about that yeah uh, the the question comes up again in a political context uh, if we spend an extra ten dollars on education today when do we feel a productivity bang? And that's a question we can't answer. Hmm. Okay, That's where you get into this uncertainty about what government can do and about the limits of government involvement here, because there's really no way in which we can truthfully tell people that, hey, if we increase this spending today, it's going to do something for us tomorrow. Uh, it may do something for us in the longer run, and that something is probably positive, but when you're a politician running for election every 2 years or 6 years or or whenever it is that's not a satisfactory answer you need something now
1: yeah and it's it also maybe this is the reason why politicians have such a bad reputation such low levels of uh trust in in our politicians is because they they do make these promises that they really can't do much about really well
4: voters want that okay yeah. voters obviously want
1: faster economic growth
4: but, but um, you know, my argument here is really there's just a, a limit to what government can deliver.
6: We had a great run
4: in the quarter century after the war. You know, we, we, people moved out of uh, uh, very uh, small and, and, and cramped uh, and uncomfortable urban apartments to nice houses in the suburbs. Okay, uh, they got themselves cars, uh, they got themselves washing machines. Uh, living standards rose really rapidly. And and that really underpinned a, a lot of the uh, social and, and uh, political developments in the post-war period. Uh, but uh, can we repeat that? You know, I don't think that's something we can order up. And and one of the, the challenges here is that this is really not a partisan issue. Right. Okay? We have had politicians from both parties in the United States and from all parties around the world insisting that if you only follow their plan, you'll have faster economic growth. Uh, I think we just don't have much of a track record suggesting
1: that that's true. What do you sense we should do as just Joe Blow, the average uh, you know, the average person maybe goes to college, gets a, gets an education. What what do I do I guess to manage my expectation and um just I guess see that the the 50s to the 80s was a pretty extraordinary time. And do the best with what I can today? What's, what's my responsibility?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the first thing that we see is that uh, we're probably not going to be looking at really rapid wage increases for a while. Wage increases in general are, are tied to productivity. They don't always track it year by year. But if productivity is not growing very rapidly, then wages over time are likely not to grow very rapidly. So I think that that's one issue that you need to think of in planning your own economic future. Uh, I, I think that it's it's very clear that we continue to have a big wage premium for training and education. Uh, and so just on a personal level, uh, I think one needs to prepare oneself for that reality. Uh, there are plenty of people out there who will tell you that they don't like math, they're not comfortable working with computers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, you know these are the sorts of skills that uh employers expect and they're important skills these days in in raising productivity within businesses and You have to be prepared to do it
1: and and again um I guess just managing the 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 benefit the blessing i mean I grew up with uh depression era grandparents that would look at me switching jobs a lot and they they couldn't believe. I would do that like, no, 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 Matt, you just get a job and you just hang on to it and you ride the wave. And um, so, I mean, just even generationally, how we look at our jobs, uh, it's different. And maybe we need to look at them as more about we've got to do everything we can to be more productive personally, grow our income because of the wage premium, get what we can out of it instead of expecting our government or our leaders to, to flip the switch.
4: Well, I think there's something to that. I think there is a challenge here for the private sector. You know, a lot of firms in in the private sector, as as I'm sure your listeners know well, have gone to making greater use of short-term labor or contingent labor. We'll hire you for the job as a contractor, and then you're gone again. And and firms do that for for short-term financial reasons, obviously. But when you hire people like that, uh, they're not necessarily committed to coming up with ideas that are going to make the firm better off. Right. They're not going to develop new ideas to improve the way that your company does business because they're not going to be around six months from now. So I think businesses really need to rethink their relationship to uh, their employees in that sense. If you want people to come up with the ideas and innovations that, that um, are important to productivity growth, then you have to give the uh, people who do that reason to want to do that for you.
1: Great insight, Mark. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you. And, and the book, again, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Postwar War Boom and a Return of the Ordinary Economy. Insights, folks. Uh, we can hope and, and pray and expect a lot from our government leaders. But honestly, we also need you know, groundbreaking innovation. <laughs> To, to help us uh, continue such a boon, and and maybe it's more important that we just start recognizing what we can do. Get an education, work hard, do what you can to expand your ability to to make money in a, in a good, normal economy, growing 1.5% to 2% annually. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. McKenna Bausch will be joining us. A little mind bender for us. Teenagers, are they replacing their smartphones? Are they replacing drugs and doing drugs with smartphones? Crazy, crazy question. Stick with us.
0: Give it up now for the House of Bows. Welcome to her house. She is
1: McKenna Bows. Welcome back, friends. McKenna Bows in the house. She's our uh, producer, our social media guru, and uh, today she's going to uh, be blowing our minds. Our kids using their phones instead of drugs—is that the new drug?
9: I personally hope so.
1: <laughs> you do? I mean, it's—it's it's a, I guess, it's a kinder, gentler drug.
9: I, in a way, yeah. The interesting thing is, is in the past ten years they've seen a steady decline in. Drug and alcohol use um, in teenagers, not so much in college students but in in, teen, uh, in teenagers, middle schoolers, high school students wow. etc and that correlates with the prevalence and the rise of cell phones and you know their popularity and Now this isn't proven yet, it is still just in the theory stages, but it's a theory that's gaining a lot of traction wow. right now
1: That's good, weird,
9: yeah. It's really interesting because what happens is they've looked at how uh, people respond to having, you know, these phones and the games that you can play on them yeah. and, you know, the social media, you know, contact with other, p- other people and the way that a lot of this research is showing is these phones act as almost a portable dopamine pump. They, you know, People feel good when they have their phone, when they're using their phone. And that is one of the reasons they don't feel that need to go sensation-seek Interesting,
1: elsewhere. yeah. Well, because I've walked, I've walked into my living room with my kids all there on their phones, and it looks like a drug house. Yeah. Because they're all just lounging around. Like in the weirdest positions ever <laughs> um, and they're all on phones and I didn't think of it, but they, there's a little portable dopamine pump just making them feel good.
9: Yeah. And so it's really interesting. Um, you know, there some people are saying, well, it, you know, it could be because of, you know, better anti-drug, you know, education um, <laughs> initiatives that have gone, yeah. you know, into effect. And there's people who hope that that's the case because they want to believe that that has been effective. Um, But there still is a lot of reason to believe it's the phones. Uh, Teenagers, you know, ages 13 to 18, average about six and a half hours of screen media time per day. That includes phones, but also video games, things like that. Um, 73% have a smartphone or access to one. Wow. I mean, it's very, very pervasive. And, you know, that could have a lot of, uh, yeah, totally. And you know, correlation there though. There's you know some uh, you know counselors who are saying I have a harder time and I have more conflicts with students who have a social media or like phone addiction uh-huh. as opposed to students who have these drug addictions. It's, it's true. There can be a lot more pushback when it comes to the phone, and some parents are like, "Well, you know, even if my kid does occasionally do drugs, it's occasional, and they leave it behind the phone. They go to bed with their phone. You know, it is it's always there, and it you know does. Well, I say I hope, you know, it's the case where it's like, yeah, I hope phones are the reason because, you know, that means like, hey, we've actually right. made a dent in drug use at the same time. It's something we need to be careful. And it's, and it's
1: a new drug. Yeah. And it's but it's a it's a highly acceptable drug and it can actually deliver other drugs. Yeah. It can deliver other forms of drugs or addictions. Is this the drug that Huey
3: Lewis was talking about when he said he wanted a new drug? Yeah, I think this was it. He yeah, cell
1: phones. smartphones so six and a half hours of screen time per day with our kids but and and adults are they they like dopamine pumps just as much
9: yeah um and you know you'd think college students are using phones just as much if not more right um along with just screen time in general with their computers i mean i'm always on my computer but the drug use trends have not Changed right. um, in those um, you know older groups, and I don't you know we don't know specifically why that is, um, but they, it's specifically having an influence.
1: They they also um, are looking at the fact that husbands, wives, marriages are touching less, mm-hmm. less sex in marriage, and they're attributing it to cell phones. Yeah,
9: because I mean, they're again, in the way of everything? Yeah. You you can just have something to distract you, mm-hmm. to keep you entertained, you know, to feel connection. Or, you know, at least some kind of pseudo connection with people via social media. So why take the energy to, like, go out and talk to the people around you?
1: Interesting. Plus, I guess it's the same effect as you're somebody that's really a a drug addict. They're not building relationships. Mm -hmm. They're not building connections. But if you're addicted to your phone, you think you've got connections. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're all sitting around I've even seen my kids with their friends, they'll just go instead of sitting around a room talking and, you know, throwing ideas out. What should we do? Let's do this through this. They'll do that, but they'll also have gaps and moments where they just sit there and everyone's on their un- their their device.
9: Yeah. Though along those lines, one really cool benefit I saw of this and possibly one of the reasons drug use is down is in the past, you know, if you were at a party or you were with friends and somebody, you know, pulled out a joint. Yeah. There was a lot of social pressure to join in because that's what everybody was doing. Now, phones, you know, kids are citing them as an excuse to not participate uh, because they can just step away and play on their phone. And it's okay to be checked out if you're on your phone. And that way, they're able to say, I I don't want to do drugs right now with you and not suffer the consequences. That's,
1: oh, oh, mind-bending. McKenna Bouse is her name, Bouse in the house. Thanks, McKenna. little mind-blower there. You killed us. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's the House
0: of Bows.